Hello, everybody, and welcome to Movie Change Up, uh, Forgotten Movies Edition. Uh, this is getting towards the end of our round robin, if you've been following the, the series. Today, our two 0-2 competitors in the Forgotten Movies category uh, get to face off, so we're very excited about that. Um, if you don't know what our show is at this point, um, we take seven movies and seven rules, and we have two competitors pitch new versions of of those films, and they have to follow uh, each rule, one per one per film. Um, if you have not liked and subscribed our video on YouTube, please do that, as well as giving us a five-star rating on all um, podcast apps that you can find us on, Apple Podcasts, and um, what are the other ones? Spotify, uh, Spotify, Google Podcasts. I was going to say, there you go. We're on all those, except I don't think we're on Stitcher, so fuck you, Stitcher. Um <laughs> Anyway, so uh, to get to our uh, episode today, uh, we are going to try to get this a little shorter than the last two episodes, which were our countdowns of top 20 movies, which were very fun. Um, but our last one was almost four hours. So we're going to kind of keep it moving today. That's the goal. So um, I'd like to first uh, introduce my consulting judge. He's going to help me on a few uh, decisions today, as well as uh, chime in, give me some insight. So please introduce yourself. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm Bobby. If you've watched this show, I'm sure you've seen, well, most of us a bunch of times, but um, I'm looking forward to contributing to this. Uh, the Forgotten Movies are always fun um, because not a lot of people know about them, so we're kind of introducing them, and um, yeah, I, I always like giving my insight. Perfect, and we're just going to move clockwise around the screen. So our next uh, competitor is Owen 2 in the Forgotten Movies. He uh, is hoping to get a win back. He was on a bit of a hot streak, uh, you know, back when we were before we started the Forgotten Movies uh, thing, and we had a little more competitors. So please introduce yourself, our first competitor today. What's up, guys? I'm back again here to hopefully get my win out for Forgotten Movies. Like you said, we've been doing this for a couple of weeks, and I still haven't won one, but I'm feeling pretty confident in my pitches this week. I'm not going to lie. I'm a few I'm a little shaky on, but I'm, I'm sure Joe's will be terrible, so it won't really matter if mine are shaky. So I'll just Dude. point out how bad his are and be good. Trash talk right away. Yeah, we got shots fired immediately, and that's to uh, my fellow co-creator of the podcast uh, over there. How are you feeling after Tristan took some shots at you? Well, the fact that he's shaky on any of them makes me feel confident. All mine are rock-solid 10 out of 10 pitches. I've spent a lot of time on this. I feel really good about what I'm about to say, and I feel like Tristan should be a lot more nervous than he is. All right. Well, some fighting words already. Um, Joe won the coin toss before the show, so he gets to decide what we're doing First, actually, no, never mind. I should read. I'll read what movies we're doing today so everyone can kind of follow up. And Bobby uh, can read the uh, the rules that the competitors are going to follow. All right. So first up, we have um, The Distant Future from 1992. We have um, the somewhat uh, should have been famous Elvis biopic, The King of Rock and Roll from 1981. Um, we have uh, The Legend of Zelda from 2009. I Fought the Law from 1983, The Blood Moon from 1993, Beyond the Burger from 1997, and last but not least, but probably least, The Globes of Gibbous from 1981. <laughs> so those are our movies. Bobby, what are our, what are our seven rules today? All right. So our seven rules, uh, one must star a famous acting duo, one must be a foreign film, one must include Gary Busey. One must use the cast of a sitcom. One must be a Leica movie. 
Uh, one must resurrect a director's career. And last but not least, one must have a tearjerker ending. All right. Very excited to see what you guys did with this. So, Joe, now what movie are we doing first and who's going first? Uh, we're going to actually start with uh, The King of Rock and Roll, and I'm going to go first. Interesting. All right. Interesting I'm, uh, I'm very, very excited about this one. Uh, Elvis is my favorite uh, musician of all time, right up there with Johnny Cash. So I've been waiting for them to do a Rock the Line-esque quality biopic. So I'm interested to see what you guys do. Now, for those who don't know about The uh, King of Rock and Roll from 1981, got an 82% of Rotten Tomatoes. Um, this biopic of Elvis Presley was shot and set to be released in 1977, but after the King's untimely death during post-production, the studio backed off. Instead of being a box office hit, it was released with almost no promotion after years on the shelf. For the critics who have seen it, they praise the essential performance of uh, Brad Dourif as Elvis. So, uh, Joe, you said you're going first. Yep. What do you got for us? All right, so like this movie, it was forgotten not because of, you know, the quality of the movie, but just kind of the release of it. Like, it's a good quality uh, Elvis biopic, one of the better biopics uh, that we've had. And then we have the Boz Lerman Elvis biopic with Austin Butler coming out, I think, either later this year or next year. So I felt just doing a straight-up Elvis biopic would seem a little redundant and just kind of like, why are they making this? So I decided to change it up a little bit. And because of that, my director is Travis Knight because I'm making this a Leica movie. Uh, for my Elvis, well, let me just get into uh, my pitch and then I'll read my cask. It'll make a little more sense. Uh, a 10-year-old Elvis living in Tupela, Mississippi, has been pushed to sing in the Mississippi-Alabama Fair and Dairy Show by his fifth grade teacher after hearing him sing during morning prayers. Elvis doesn't know what to sing, so he listens to his parents' record for inspiration. As he watches each record spin on the record player, he is transported to a new fantastical world. When he puts on the Bill Monroe record, he is transported to the hills of Kentucky where Bill Monroe and his band are playing all alone near a riverbank. Bill talks to Elvis about bluegrass music and what it means to him. When he puts on the Lead Belly record, he is transported to a small white church where the choir is composed of angels. Lead Belly talks about how music can help people and how it helped him through hard times in his life. When he puts on the Sinatra record, he is transported to a New York theater where Sinatra walks off stage after performing to thousands of screaming fans. He talks to him about how fun it could be to perform and how it's about putting on a show. When he puts on the Big Bill Brunsey record, he is transported to an old recording studio and it is shown how more, the more genres you do, more people will listen to you. And when he puts on an Ella Fitzgerald and Duke Ellington song, he is transported to a jazz club and is taught to be himself and not try to be anything else. After hearing all of the records, young Elvis is in his room when his mom tells him it's time for the fair. Elvis is on stage, and similarly to the ending of Bohemian Rhapsody, young Elvis performs a medley of what will be his greatest hits on stage. And as he performs, he morphs from little kid Elvis to young adult black shirt Elvis, and finally to white bedazzled suit Elvis. Uh, as far as my cast goes, uh, as the voice of Elvis is uh, Winslow Fegley, uh, he's 11 years old, uh, and he's kind of like the next big Disney Channel star. Uh, he's the star of like the big uh, Disney Plus uh, show for kids. Uh, my bluegrass singer, Bill Monroe, is going to be voiced by Chris Pine. Gospel singer, Lead Belly, is going to be voiced by Jamie Foxx. Uh, Frank Sinatra is going to be voiced by uh, Frank Sinatra impersonator Richard Shelton. Blue singer, Big Bill Brunsey, is going to be voiced by John Legend. And then Ella Fitzgerald and Duke Ellington are going to be voiced by Jennifer Hudson and Mackay Pfeiffer. And that's my pitch. 
very interesting direction to go with that. Um, Tristan, uh, let's see what you got. I went, I went in a different direction, but a bit more of a traditional one. Like you said at the beginning, I'm a big fan of Elvis, and not just because of his music, but because of his fascinating story. Like, even if you just go on his Wikipedia page and scroll down, like, every paragraph is like a movie in itself. You know, there's so many great little anecdotes and things like that. So I think someone that can capture that big scale of a story, of a life, but also the humanity of it, would not make him a big sort of God creature, you know, make him see, show the human beneath it. And I think Martin Scorsese can do that great. He's had some really good biopics uh, from Raging Bull to The Irishman to Wolf of Wall Street. I think some of his best work is in biopics. And I want to kind of take his concept that he did with Raging Bull and Irishman and sort of bring them together by having one actor play Elvis throughout the whole movie and also having uh, some scenes at the beginning that are in black and white where we're seeing Elvis as an adult. So I'll kind of get into my pitch right now uh i have it right over here so elvis uh we all know he had kind of big ambitions as a as a as a film actor so i think scorsese would be a great uh person to sort of tribute that he never really made any great movies but scorsese i think is obviously a great director so we start like i said it's black and white we're in the future uh elvis is old he's overweight uh, he's kind of self-medicating. We knew that, that his last couple of years or so, he was falling into drug abuse, unfortunately, and his body was kind of falling apart. So I want to show Elvis at that point in his life. Uh, and a telecard tells us that it's June 21st, 1977. He's about to go on stage in uh, Rapid City, South Dakota. And in this moment, he looks in the mirror and he sees himself and it brings him back to when he was young. And we get some of these great moments in the history of Elvis from uh, when he was a kid and he performed at a talent show and all his classmates were kind of shocked because he'd been made fun of as the kid who played guitar in school. They didn't think he was anything good. And then he performed at this talent show and it was kind of a moment for him to realize he might pursue music a little bit more. So I want to, I want to capture some of those moments, not, you know, not the, not, all the big moments, not him going on the shows and him going to the big stadiums, a lot of these smaller moments too, like what made this man who he is, the human side of this icon. Yeah, there's some really interesting stories I'd like to portray in this. Uh, we, we know he met with Nixon literally because he was so anti-drug. He was very uh, against the hippie movement and the drug culture around hippie movement. There's a story of someone that he knew, and when he met her, she mentioned that she'd smoked marijuana before, and he got very upset and said, don't do that, don't do that. But I want to capture how he kind of he went from that to someone who was sort of overweight and abusing drugs himself, and I think deconstructing that kind of a character is very fascinating. So I kind of just want to capture the spirit of Elvis, show a lot of his great moments, a lot of his highs and lows, but the man behind it as well, and I think Scorsese captures that perfectly. So um, that's my pitch. It's just as he exploring the life of Elvis and the man behind the, the legend. All right. I have some things to All say right. about that. All right. Um, okay. After hearing both pitches, Bobby, what um, do you have a question for either of them? Is he muted? Yeah, Bobby? he's muted yeah, for me. Yeah, I'm muted. Hold on. Um, so I, I like different biopics, and I guess with um, Joe's, it's not quite a biopic, but I, I like the musical aspect. Um, and the original Brad Dorf did his own singing and kind of did like an Elvis impersonation. Are you going to have 
like for Joe, like, are you dubbing in? Cause it's animated. Is it just, you know, just Elvis's music. And then same for Tristan is, are your, is your actor singing or is it going to be the Elvis music, the recorded version? Uh, and mine, because I'm having like other actors come in and play like real life people, like all of the people I listed in my movie are real life people that inspired all this. It's all probably anytime they sing, I figured I was going to have the actor actually sing. That's why I tried to pick like either singers who have acted before or actors who can actually sing to come in and do that. And then what I was thinking for my end scene where it starts, where it's like little kid Elvis and then it morphs as it, when it starts, it would probably be the little kid singing, like maybe the opening song or two. But then as he morphs, I was thinking of having uh, like live recordings of Elvis dubbed into the final performance. Okay. Uh, Tristan. I didn't mention my actor actually, but it's Ray Liotta. I think he has a great range from, you can tell he, when he was young, he was very attractive and he's kind of, his 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 body and face would change a lot, so I think a lot like uh, he did with with the Irishman. It would be interesting to see him de-age him, but yeah, I would have him do some of, some of his own singing for sure. I think that's kind of the appeal. Like you mentioned, to walk the line, and I think what makes that movie so great is the story of Johnny Cash, but also that you can that he's actually singing. You know, I don't really like when they do like a Bohemian Rhapsody thing where they dub over the voice. So I definitely have him singing. Okay, cool. All right, I like that. Um. My question, because uh, I Tristan didn't really completely get into it, so this is a little more for for Joe, but Tristan can answer this too. Um, Elvis is kind of known as taking rock and roll music, which was the epitome of like black culture in this country, and then popularizing it as a white artist. Joe, it seems like you have a lot of influences, quote unquote, in your movie, but none of them are like Chuck Berry or actual rock and roll artists. You have Duke Ellington and jazz and Frank Sinatra and doesn't sound like you really get into that. And Tristan, are you going to get into uh, some of the criticisms of Elvis of, of doing that, of kind of uh, stealing black music at all? So Joe, you answer that first. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's some, because I wanted to stay somewhat accurate. So all of the people that he like meets with are performers that had albums out and were making music when Elvis was 10, like someone like Chuck Berry hadn't like made music until Elvis was already like making music. So it just didn't like timeline wise make sense for him to uh, be influenced by Chuck Berry when he's 10 years old when Chuck Berry hadn't made any music yet. Uh, but there are like art, like I do have like African American and black artists who were doing like gospel and jazz and other music that did influence Elvis's style, like Ella Fitzgerald and Duke Ellington and, you know, Lead Belly and stuff like that. So, I mean, I do portray that. I just didn't have, um, Chuck Berry himself, just because it didn't make sense timeline-wise. Okay. And, uh, and Tristan, you're going to get into the influences of uh, of Elvis? Yeah, I'm for sure going to get into that. I mean, in my pitch, I could have gone through all the stuff I want to cover. There's so many good moments. But one that I definitely want to have included is this moment, these, these stories of him going to whites-only nights at blues clubs. I think showing that moment would be very interesting because I don't want to directly, like, I want to be accurate to the times. Like the racism was around him. You can tell he was being influenced, but people weren't approaching him and yelling at him for it. It wasn't something people talked about yet. So I want us to show that around him in his life. You know, he was, he'd walk down Beale street at night and he'd be seeing, he'd be in like black communities and people would be struggling around him and then he'd be successful. And I think just portraying that flatly, but not addressing it is what I'm going to be doing is showing it as it was. And 
presenting it and allowing the audience to take their own conclusions. All right. Um, with all of that being said, uh, since Joe pitched first, I'll let him start first. Argue why either yours is better or why Tristan's uh, is worse. All right, yeah. So my thing mainly against Tristan is, like I said, with the Brad Dora version that we already have that's really good, People, the people that have seen it like it. And then his just sounds more like a paint-by-numbers uh, biopic. It's it, it starts off exactly as the way, like, the Dewey Cox Walk Hard movie, like, does by spoofing musical biopics. It starts off with him old, reflecting on his early life. And then he's, like, wants to show the moment with uh, Mike uh, with uh, Elvis talking with Nixon. And we already have a movie with that. It's with Michael Shannon and Kevin Spacey called Elvis and Nixon. I'm not so going to show that. I never said that I would. I didn't mention that in my pitch. I used it as evidence to, to portray the character, but I didn't say it was going to be in the movie. Okay, but still, it's a, it just seems like a lot of paint-by-numbers you know, stuff we've kind of seen before. That I, If it's bringing anything new, I don't know, Like especially what would attract Martin Scorsese to do a biopic of for a movie we already have a biopic of a person about. It just seems kind of redundant. That's why I wanted to do this. And like the Brad Dora version opens with his performance as a kid in the fifth grade in the fair. So I thought this would be like a good companion piece to that. You kind of show the backstory, like a fantastical backstory to that. And then you can go right into the Brad Dora version where his just sounds like more of the same. All right, well, I'll respond to that and say I think that Martin Scorsese, if anyone, can make a really, really great biopic. I mean, the old one was fine and it was good, but I think Scorsese can take this story and really elevate it and make it what it can be. And I think yours sounds like a cool movie with Elvis in it, I guess, but like, I want a real, genuine Elvis biopic. I want to tell the story of Elvis, of a guy who discovered this music and kind of became a pioneer of rock music. He didn't, he didn't discover rock music, but he was the one who brought it, put a face to it and put it on mainstream as someone that we know the, the iconography of, we know the fame of, but to get the story, the life story of to see this man become who we know him as, that's a fascinating story, you know? And I think we need to do him justice by giving him a real biopic from a real director who can portray all of these great moments that define this great artist and the human side of it too. We know, how he died, but we're not going to make him like a someone who loses his mind and is a terrible person. Like we just want to show this guy who was a huge heroic icon who became human, you know, who was always human all along the same way he did for Irishman. I think what he did so brilliantly with that was you see this man who was this tough mob guy and that we all tell these crazy mob stories about, but in reality, he was just this man at the end. And we see, we see him sitting there alone, just desperate for a connection. And I want to do Elvis similarly. I think what was so, why I picked that date in particular is because he gave an incredible performance that night, just two months before he died, a uh, performance of Unchained Melody. He showed up kind of uh, under the influence of some things that night. He wasn't really fully aware of himself, but he came out for this one final song and just completely killed it. And it's amazing. You'll watch the YouTube video and it's like this moment where you have Elvis as the old man dying slowly, you know, you see his body failing him, but as soon as he gets behind the piano, as soon as there's a mic in front of his face, it's like he's the old Elvis again. You know, I want that to be the final scene. We see Elvis as an old man playing and that music connects him back to his youth, connects him back to all the events you see in this movie. And his, his whole life is coming to a conclusion right now in this moment. 
and the music is what brings it all together. You know, I think the music of Elvis is what makes his story so incredible. So of course I want that music all around it. And I want the music to be the finale of the movie, you know? So I just think mine, so mine sounds like a great Elvis pick and that's what I want. Yeah. And maybe when, you know, he's done doing an Elvis biopic, he can do a Johnny Cash biopic and a Doors biopic and an NWA biopic. And I just feel like you have a great Elvis finale. Like you, it's old man Elvis. Mine has like all of Elvis's big hits at the end. Uh, and like you could do it in a cool, fantastical, like animated way. And that'd be really interesting. It could be a good way for like kids to be introduced to Elvis. And then it also could help be like, as far as like the rule use of uh, a Leica movie, it'd be interesting because it could, because Leica, like they make good movies, but outside of like hardcore film fans, like no one like sees their movie. So if you do like, oh, this is like a movie about Elvis, it could be the type of thing that puts Leica on the map and could make their movie seen further going forward. I'm just. Right. Not... I think I've. I, I think I've heard enough to make my decision. Bobby, do you agree with that? Yeah, I'd say so. I've heard a good amount. Okay. Um. So, Bobby, give me give me your opinion. Um. Maybe that'll sway me because I'm a little torn. Um. But I think I have my final ruling. Yeah, I, I was torn for most of it. Um. Because at first, with Joe's, like, it, you know, it didn't really give me the Elvis story, which is kind of what I was looking for in the movie. Uh. But but. Um, with Tristan, I think you leaned a little too heavily on some things Scorsese has done. And also, um, I'm not a big fan of de-aging Ray Liotta for most of the movie when he's younger. I don't know how well that really worked in The Irishman. It kind of took me out of it. Um, but even though it's close, I think I'm more interested in Joe's. And I do like the idea of putting Leica on the map. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm torn because I think both movies don't sound very good. Um, I, I am a little disappointed by both pitches because I'm a huge Elvis fan. I would have liked um, maybe some better choices in there. I think what originally going into it, I figured it would go down to the leads. Like, okay, who picked the more talented lead to kind of portray it? And I don't think either of you picked uh, the right lead for an Elvis movie. Joe just, you know, picked a kid, which was maybe the best one for your story, but it's no one I'm interested in seeing play Elvis. So that's a different direction. And Ray Liotta is 66 years old. Elvis died when he was 42. Why are we picking an old man to play basically for the majority of the movie, Elvis's life, you know, when he's never even reached the, the life of uh, Ray Liotta's lived. I would have liked to see, I agree with Bobby. I think the, the aging was the worst part of the Irishman. I would have really liked Tristan to pick someone maybe like Brad Dorff in the original one, who was a, like a right age to kind of be prime Elvis. And then you can, age him up rather than age, you know, someone who's lived a quarter of a life more than Elvis ever did. So I really didn't like that pick, but Elvis had such an interesting life. And outside of this film, which never really got into like the darker aspects of it, I feel like Elvis's life is so interesting because he was only on top of the world for what seems like looking back on it, not very long. And he had a long um, absence out of fame or, you know, struggling with drugs. And I think at least Tristan's movie with Scorsese can get into those more interesting aspects. I think also Scorsese has shown through his directing of music videos and through the last waltz with uh, the band and things like that, that he can actually do really, really awesome uh, musical performances and direct the hell out of those and do good biopics like Tristan mentioned, where I do think the key of a good biopic is the right lead. I don't think Tristan did that. Joe's movie is not an Elvis movie in any way, 
shape or form. The movie is called The King of Rock and Roll, and there's no rock and roll in Joe's movie. I would have liked Joe's movie better if at least he got into having like the the real influence of Elvis, like Little Richard and Ike Turner, and, you know, Joe Turner and and Ray Charles. And those guys should have been the influences. I don't need to see Duke Ellington and and all these guys in your movie. It doesn't have anything to do with rock and roll. And I think it would just, especially like you mentioned, um, like us not huge. I think this whole movie would just confuse audiences. And at least I know what I'm getting out of Tristan. So I'm going Tristan ever so slightly on that one. Um, but uh, he gets the early one nothing lead. All right. So Joe, where are we going next? All right. I guess I'll go with uh, the Globes of Gibbous and I'll go first again. All right. Globes of Gibbous. Uh, came out in 1981, got a whopping 14% on Rotten Tomatoes. The film is about this. Um, when the village of a young girl named Luxie Lumen gets attacked by space bandits, she is sa- saved by a mysterious older woman. It is revealed to her that she is the princess of an entire planet that went into hiding from the evil galactic liberation. She must recruit a peculiar team of heroes to stop the galactic liberation led by the villainous Caligo Tenebris and bring her true home planet out of hiding. Uh, after the success of Star Wars, this was one of the many, many forgotten space operas that bombed in the early 80s. So, Joe, you're going first. What do you got for me? All right. So uh, my director is going to be uh, Dave Filoni. And that's because I'm going to make this movie animated. Uh, The description reads like an animated movie. Also, my main problem with space movies is there aren't enough aliens. So uh, no characters in my version will be human. Being animated is going to help with this. Uh, Filoni has spent the last 20 years putting out top-notch animated content, whether it's his work on King of the Hill, Kim Possible, Lilo and Stitch, Avatar The Last Airbender, Star Wars Clone Wars, Star Wars Rebels. And uh, the Globes of Gibbous was inspired by Star Wars, so an animated remake would be the perfect first true feature film for him since he spent the last part of a decade learning under George Lucas. And then I'll give you my plot and I'll give my uh, actors afterwards. So in my film, uh, Princess Adnak is on the run from the Galactic Liberation and Caligo Tenebris. Uh, Her personal guards and top military officers have been abducted. She needs a team. She goes to a nearby planet where the direct descendant of a great wizard named Gibbous, who has a legend on her planet, lives. The descendant is Luxie Lumen, a young farm girl who lives with her dad in a small village, which is being raided by the Galactic Liberation. The princess distracts the evil men and saves the young girl. Uh, How Luxie is unaware of her powers, the princess tells her everything and begs for her help. Luxie reluctantly agrees, unsure if the woman is telling the truth or if she's just crazy. They need more people for their team. They go from town to town recruiting the living descendants of the wizard, all of which are kids. Uh, the kids all are all from different background. The kids all from different backgrounds must work together to learn their powers using round globe-like orbs that belong to their ancestor Gibbous, which is where the uh, title comes from, the Globes of Gibbous, and channel their energy to stop the evil Caligro Tenebris and the Galactic Liberation. And so. Uh, playing Lucky Lumen, the farm girl, is going to be Aaliyah Cravalho, who is the voice of Moana in Moana. Uh, Watso Plaxis, who's kind of like the nerdy kid of the team, is going to be played by Ian Armitage from Young Sheldon. Uh, Tepper Sackle, the dumb jack 
uh, character is going to be played by Julian Dennison from uh, Deadpool 2 and Hunt for the Wilder People. And then uh, Nalan Kenneth, the uh, privileged rich girl, is going to be played by Julia Butters from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And then as far as uh, my rule use goes, I use the rule of a famous acting duo. So my princess Adnak is going to be played by Scarlett Johansson. And then my Caligo Tenebris is going to be voiced by Chris Evans. Uh, they've worked closely together on six MCU movies. They've also done two non-MCU films together, The Nanny Diaries and The Perfect Score. And then both are rumored to be in the upcoming Greg Berlanti-directed Little Shop of Horrors remake. And uh, that's my pitch. All right. Well, I uh, went with, for mine, I went with making it a foreign film. So I went with... Let me pull up my notes really quick. I went with the director of Train to Busan, uh, Yan Sang-ho. And I think what I went with uh, foreign film on this is because I think we do get a lot of foreign dramas. We get a lot of foreign horror, things like that. But I think we rarely get like big foreign action movies, uh, like sci-fi style, like big scale movies, you know, going into space and blowing up ships, that kind of sale. So I want to give a chance for this to be like a big breakout hit in America of what foreign action movies can really be when you give them that big of a scale. And I think he showed in Train to Busan and also Peninsula that he can capture emotion in action. I think especially Peninsula, it was very action-oriented, and I think he pulled it off really well. So I'm going to go with that for my story. And Joe told a good origin story of this team kind of coming together, but I'm kind of tired of just seeing a bunch of origin stories of things, so I want to sort of just do it differently. I want to have this team already together, uh, this woman, we have like a, you know, the origin story will come through the first couple minutes over the opening credits and things like that. We see her uh, joining causes with these these this team and going around and gathering up together. And now they're on their sort of first mission as like a full fledged team. It's, they're not gathering together anymore. They're on their first mission together. So they're going and they're fighting against essentially a a priestess who has who has taken over one of the uh, nearby moons of their planet and she's claimed independence from their planet and wants to sort of declare rebellion. So as a princess, she's going to be fighting against this witch who uh, is trying to declare rebellion on her throne and on her kingdom. And it's sort of a nice big fun action movie, not anything deep with the plot or the characters, the themes you're just getting really point A to point B fun action. And I think that this, director can have the heart in these characters. Like there wasn't a ton of character development happening in Train to Busan, but just within that uh, that few minutes they had at the beginning and at the end, like you, you felt for these characters and they didn't need to have a ton of development. You just through the, through the events and through the action of it happening, you felt the changes, you know? And I think he really, and then by the end, of course, it pays off the emotion. If you've seen that movie, you know that it just kind of guts you at the end. So I think he could make us root for these characters and Train to Busan is well known enough in the States that I think people would go see something. So I think the bigger budget like won't be that big of a risk. So I think this would be the movie that can really change how people look at foreign action movies. They're not all kung fu movies. They can be something even bigger than that, you know. And I think that's very exciting. So that's my pitch. Okay. All right. Um, all right. I'll, I'll start with... Uh with my question in this one. Um, the whole, one of the only like cool aspects of the original one was literally the planet going into hiding and the whole 
title of gibbous comes from the moon term so they made the planet disappear similar to um you know kind of how the moon did and the special effects even for 1981 were pretty decent um do you guys have anything like similar to um throw into your movie about like the planet going into hiding or you know take one of the only cool aspects of the original uh tristan i'll start with you you got anything like that it's definitely an, a big huge event in their history something they refer to a lot so i i have that sort of like after the avengers every avengers movie mentions like oh what happened in new york what happened in new york and it's like this past event they all remember so i want it to be kind of like that and since this preset is on the moon uh, it's going to be a reminder of what happened to them. And a lot of the people who are going to that moon on that adventure are going to be people who experienced this event before. This whole team was there when that happened. So they're going to be afraid that this woman, if she takes over the moon, she could do that again. And she could disappear the planet again. It's like this threat in the background, you know, that makes it very exciting for me. If you, if you know the power of this, like I said, in the opening credits, they're going to show that happening. So you're going to know the power of this, even if you haven't seen the original and know the characters of the comics or where this all came from. So I think that would be very exciting to get that, that in the back of these characters heads while they're going through this adventure. Uh, yeah. For me, mine's a little different because his is like, uh, mine happens like during the movie instead of before one, the one of the big climactic moments of the kids all figuring out their powers and being able to work together and using their powers is they actually use their magic powers to hide the moon from the uh, Galactic Liberation and Caligo Tenebris. And it's like a big, like huge, like audience applause moment when they finally work together and figure it out and hide the moon so he can't attack it. All right. Um, and Bobby, uh, what do you what do you got for us? Yeah, so the original is known, it, like if you actually watch it, it had pretty interesting weaponry. Um, one of them being like one of the guys on the team had uh, laser nunchucks. So can you kind of describe any kind of interesting you know, combat moves or combat techniques or weapons that you guys have that could uh, reference the original. I'll start with you, Joe. Oh uh, yeah. Like one of the things like Julian Dennison's character, like they all are kind of, because they're all descended from the same person. They all kind of have like have a base, like look and base species, but because they're all aliens, you know, there's a little bit of variance in each and, you know, there's been hundreds of years since Gibbous was alive. And so, you know, genetically they've all changed a little bit. Uh, but like one of uh, Julian Tennyson's, his character's trait is he can like split and then fight as two separate people and then come back together. Uh, the rich girl, she uh, has like a bunch of like gadgets and cool stuff that she has from her dad, who was like a legendary general uh, who became like king. Uh, the farm girl, uh, she actually with her powers, she can like commune with animals and stuff. And that's why she her like one of her family traits that she got from her dad's side. She descended from Gibbous on her mom's side, but one of her abilities from her dad's side is she can commune with animals and so she can help. And it's not just like your typical like cows and like horses. These are like cool alien species that she can command to fight. So things like that. Okay, cool. Tristan? Uh, since they're fighting against a priestess, the priestess is going to have a lot of really cool, interesting weapons, uh, sort of like as, as a foil to the ones we typically would see. So she's going to be having stuff that's sort of more magical and moving around sort of gravity around them, being able to throw rocks and stuff at people like that on the moon. And to counteract that, I'm going to give our team some heavy-duty kind of gravity gun stuff where they can pull up this big gun and grab a rock and they can pull it up and shoot it. You know, they're they're moving a lot slower than the priestess, so they're going to have to really coordinate with their weaponry because it's so much less advanced than her magic is. So I really want to see this kind of 
conflict of their weaponry versus her magic and technology versus like spirituality and which one can come out on top. Okay. Interesting. All right. Do you all set Johnny or uh, do you have another question? My, um, I just want, I want Joe to start on this one and just, this isn't more of a question, but just explain to me as someone who, um, doesn't really follow a lot of the outside of uh, Star Wars things. I hear the name Dave Filoni. The only thing I think of is Star Wars. Why is your movie just not going to confuse anyone into thinking that this is just another Star Wars movie? Uh, because, I mean, it's not going to be marketed as like Star Wars presents, you know, the Globes of Gibbous. It's going to be like, I feel like the type of people who know who Dave Filoni is are in the know enough to know that like, hey, he's doing a movie that's not connected to Star Wars. Like, I feel like the type of people that might be confused that were like, maybe confused on like where Rogue One was in the Star Wars timeline, like have no idea who he is. So like his name really doesn't mean anything. It'll just be like, hey, a guy that helps out with Star Wars is like doing his own thing. I don't think it would really necessarily if they don't market it as star and then like every like ign and collider and all those articles are gonna say like dave filoni doing his own original movie or movie that's inspired by the globes of Gibbous. it's not gonna say like hey dave filoni's doing a star wars movie called the globes of Gibbous. okay all right um so then uh yeah with that being said fight it out yeah, I mean, I disagree with his defense of Filoni. I think this original movie was criticized for being a ripoff of Star Wars. And if I think you take Dave Filoni, who's literally only known at all for doing Star Wars, and you put him on this movie, it's just going to be another ripoff. It's going to be a movie that's catered to Star Wars fans and only Star Wars fans, you know? If I ask my dad, oh, do you want to go see the new Dave Filoni movie? He's going to be like, I don't know what that is. And no one who's not a Star Wars fan is going to be going to see a movie based off, based off the name of Dave Filoni. And especially you take something that's so kind of nerdy and in star wars and sci-fi already it's just gonna feel like the same thing and i think we've seen in the last in this last trilogy that you can make just like rip off star wars movies that are bad and like something like the force awakens i think is barely not this you know like this just feels like a ripoff of star wars to me and just putting dave filoni on there alone is going to be enough to do that and i think that my movie is good because it it's just an adventure movie. It just takes these characters and puts them on an adventure. We don't need to see how they all met and came together. We can just say, oh, they're these cool space characters and they are on this adventure now. Like, I don't need to see teams come together in a movie again. I'm, I'm tired of Guardians of the Galaxy type movies where it's like, oh, here comes the good guys together one by one by one. And then maybe in the final scene, they're a cool team together. You know, I want to see the cool team together the whole movie. And I think that my movie is that. It's the cool team going out on a really cool adventure, fighting out some crazy witch who they're who's fighting them with magic and they're using these weapons of technology against that mine just sounds a lot more exciting a lot more fun and not just like the same bad story the same bad movie told over again and mine mine just sounds better so i think mine should easily win this one my thing against that is when's the last time you've gone to an animated movie because of who the director was it wasn't like all this you know i'm going to see you know wreck it ralph 2 because the director is amazing like you go to an animated movie because they like the animated style looks good. The visuals look cool. The story looks interesting. Like very rarely are you going to an animated movie because you think, and then as far as you want to say, Oh, this like director's not going to get people from outside star Wars. You couldn't even say who your director was. You were just like, Oh, it's the director from train to Busan. If you said whoever the director of train to Busan is, is directing your movie. 
like to the average person out on the street that's not going to make them want to go see that movie and i feel like yours when it's in a foreign language and then it's all these big sci-fi terms and you know there's a lot going on it could be confusing to a general audience that uh where something like parasite that's more straightforward and more simpler it's easier to digest when it's in a foreign language i feel like as far as like Dave Filoni goes, having done Star Wars, he's not going to feel the need to make this like a love letter to Star Wars or, oh, I want to make this part of Star Wars or inject Star Wars into this. If he wants to go make Star Wars, he can go make Star Wars uh, whenever he wants in the Star Wars universe. He can, he's completely free to not do Star Wars in the Globes of Gibbous because he can do Star Wars whenever he wants. I think that you don't need to know the name of the director when you're seeing the trailer for my movie. You see from the director of Train to Busan and people know what that is, you know, and people you put on there from the director of The Mandalorian and people will be like, oh, that's that show on Disney Plus. All right. But I don't need to see like some totally different movie. that's not even Star Wars related from this guy who I guess wrote some directed some episodes of Mandalorian or whatever. No one outside of Star Wars is going to care. You know, even if you put that on there, like from the writer of Mandalorian. Okay. I yeah, think mine has appeal. The director of Avatar The Last Airbender, that also carries some weight. Yeah, the movie was great. You well, put from yeah. the director of Avatar The Last Airbender, people will be like, oh, well, that movie was terrible. I mean, I'm not seeing this. Classic, if you put the like modern classic animated series, Avatar The Last Airbender, like that's going to carry some weight. I guess so. But not, I mean, our generation, maybe. My dad's not going to be like, oh, wow, the director of Avatar The Last Airbender. But if we, I tell my dad the director of Train to Busan, he'll say, oh, I saw that one. That was really good. I'll go see this one. But my movie's also like an animated movie that's more aimed for a younger generation. And how many people outside of the Avatar The Last Airbender have kids that are in the right age range to go see this movie? I feel like people that have kids that are in like the, you know, 9 to like 15 age range know what avatar the last airbender is i'm not sure if they do it was big with mirror kids but it's not it hasn't been on for years and years yeah exactly that's um I mean. all right these, these are kind of going in in similar yeah. directions over and over so i think i'm going to leave my the final ruling on this one to bobby he might have his mind more made up than i do but before we get to either of us um we have some uh live comments yeah, so uh, in regards to this argument, uh, we have Paul, who says, most of us don't see movies based on directors. The average person has no clue who directed. And I do agree with that. Uh, we have some. We do have some that are... Um, actually, he just commented again. He says, yeah, I'm an average person. I don't give a flying fuck who directed. Fair enough. Hmm. Um, we have some that are related to the older arguments we can get to in a little bit, but uh, those related to this fight. To this one? Okay. Yep. I I think Paul um, made a point of it. I, I do think like every single marketing aspect of um, Joe's movie, it just like through trailers and everything else for the general audience to try to get them interested will be Dave Filoni. The yeah, but that's your. It's not like I said that's what the marketing would be used with. You're not saying that's what the marketing will be, but your job is just to pitch the movie, and I'm telling you what the marketing would actually be. You don't be. know that's true either. There's a, yeah, no, there's a 100% chance. So if Dave could, the marketing is Chris, Chris Evans and Scarlett Johansson star in this movie could be my marketing. 
Yeah, but every single time you see any movie, at least on those, it's oh yeah, the you know this person who did this other thing. The director, it always says who the director, like other things he's done. I don't think that really impacts people like Paul or a ton of people. That's just you can't escape the marketing and the comparisons that are going to be made to Star Wars. I do think that hinders your movie because the reason this movie failed originally was trying to copy Star Wars. So I think doing what Tristan did was a smarter angle of getting as far away from any comparisons as you can. Um, also, I don't trust, even just without those comparisons, I don't trust the guy who did a shitty animated Star Wars movie, The basically the one movie he directed, to basically do a similar movie for his directorial, you know, like his next directorial, uh, like, film. He also but, has, like, 12-plus years in animation after that. He's done shows and stuff like that, but I don't know. I mean, he's done one. I can only base it off basically the one movie he did, which was the Bad Clone Wars animated movie. But with all that being said, I don't think all that stuff really impacts the general audiences. Tristan sounds a lot like um, The Wandering Earth, which was a, a Chinese film that made a ton of money. It made like $700 million, but it is unwatchably bad. I don't know if the time is right yet for a huge, like a big budget sci-fi foreign film. So that's why I'm very torn on this one. Personally, I would be more interested in seeing Tristan's just because there's no universe. I would go see Joe's, but I think the general audiences would maybe be um, more interested in Joe's. And that is what he was pitching it for. Um, And I don't like basing mine off of what audiences might go see. So I picked Tristan based on me. Um, but Bobby, I wanted to leave it up to you because I think you'll maybe have a, a better uh, or more uh, firm decision on this one. Yeah, and I think just, you know, this might have depended on obviously who was making the final ruling, but I do have more of a background on Dave Filoni and I, I trust him a lot more than I think you would. That Clone Wars movie, basically this, this, they just decided to combine three episodes and make it a movie um, without the knowledge. Like those were just episodes they just combined said, here, here's a movie. Um, so that really wasn't his fault. And I think he does a fantastic job. So that really didn't hinder me. And I think to make an animated movie that's in the vein of Star Wars, I think Dave Filoni's perfect. Um, with Tristan's, I am interested in seeing a big budget foreign film. Um, the only problem, I don't know if the effects are quite ready outside of Hollywood and to put that big budget into it um, to make it worth it. Uh, and, and, and anything that's big sci-fi fun action, like Johnny said, is kind of unwatchable right now that's coming out of other countries. Um, so that doesn't interest me quite as much. And because I'm more into Dave Filoni and his work than Johnny is, that kind of leaned me towards Joe. So that's, that's where I'm going to tie it up. But I, but I was pretty torn for most of the arguments, but that's where I'm going. All right. There you go. Squeaking by. Yeah. I was like, I can't make the final ruling on this because I'm, a little too biased in terms of the pitches there. I would go see a foreign film over an animated movie for the most part. So, um, Bobby, you said you have um, other uh, live comments that may be related to. Yes, yeah, it's all Paul, but just sound going back to um, the first arguments, um, he said that Joe sounded more different and interesting um, and that the influence of rock and roll is blues and gospel. Um, so he was just kind of commenting on that he did like Joe's Joe's pitch a little more than than you did, I believe. Oh, my other question. Yeah, we didn't really get into this. Tristan brings it up in the private uh, chat. What is Joe's? Um, what 
role did you use on that one, Joe? Uh, the, the, duo. Acting duo, the acting duo of uh, Johansson and uh, uh, what's his face, Chris Evans. Chris, Chris Evans, yeah. Oh, that's a famous acting duo. I mean, they've done eight movies together. Yeah, okay. Six right. of yeah, yeah, I didn't think like I picked like Jeremy Renner and like Chris Hemsworth who were in like Avengers movies together. It was like fine and yeah, they at least had Winter Soldier too, where they were like the two leads, and they they've had enough interaction that I was. Have they, have they done with. anything together outside of? Yeah, they had. Uh, I I said it in my pitch. They had where is it? At? Oh, it was the perfect score, the Nanny Diaries, and then they're both rumored to be in the upcoming Little Shop of Horrors, directed by Greg Berlanti together. Okay. All right, so I, I think that is fine. Yeah. It's not maybe the idea of the rule of the question, but yeah, I think it works enough. Kind of works fine, and, and we already made the ruling, so <laughs> you know what are you gonna do? Um, all right, that uh, means the game is tied, and Tristan gets to decide what we are doing next. All right, next up, I'm gonna go for Under the Blood Moon, and I'm gonna change it up a bit and make Joe go first again. <laughs> oh wow. Yeah, let's change it up a bit by doing the same thing. All right. Uh, Under the Blood Moon came out in 1993. It has a Rotten Tomato score of 67%. Um, this 1990s horror movie directed by Ron Underwood explores how a werewolf would react to a blood moon. Um, Val Kilmer plays Matthew Fulm, um, a psychologist uh, cursed with becoming a vicious wolfman on every full moon. For years, he was able to contain himself chained to the basement of his secluded house at night. But when a rare blood moon occurs, he breaks free to terrorize the town. Although the movie was solid, the effects blew up the budget and were not quite believable. Um, so that is all you really need to know about Under the Blood Moon. Um, so, Joe, uh, you're going first. What do you got? All right. So if anyone's unaware, the rule I'm using is I'm resurrecting a director's career. Just so... Whenever you, if you forget, that's you. what I'm doing. I write that one down. And the director I chose is uh, Robert Rodriguez. And uh, my Matthew Fulne is going to be played by Pedro Pascal. And this is my pitch. Matthew Fulne is a Texas cop whose jurisdiction runs along the Mexican border. He crosses paths with a cartel led by a man played by Oscar Isaac, who he is trying to take down after he suspected they kidnapped and trafficked his sister. The cartel, who has taken over a small town just across the Mexican border, kidnaps him with the intent of torturing him. He is pleading with them to let him go and saying it is for their own good. He even resorts to begging for them to kill him. They zip tie his hands behind his back and throw him in a basement after beating him. That night there is a full moon, which means Matthew turns into a werewolf. However, tonight is a rare blood moon, which, and I'm keeping this from the original, it makes him impervious to silver bullets. Matthew becomes an unstoppable, unkillable killing machine who is bent on revenge. Matthew tears through the cartel, ripping them limb from limb in a violent action-packed showdown, ending with him going against Oscar Isaac's character. Uh, the movie ends with him heading back to the United States in his human form and the innocent citizens of the village finally coming out of hiding. And that's my pitch. Pretty sure Robert Rodriguez just directed a movie that came out like two weeks ago, but we'll go with, we'll go with that. <laughs> All right, I'll go through my pitch. Uh, I use the same rule as you. I, re I revived the director's career, but I actually revived the director whose career is not actively happening right now. Uh, Frank Darabont, he hasn't directed a movie in a very long time. So I think a horror movie is a great way for him to come back. He, The Mist was a really good kind of tense 
horror thriller and he did the first season of Walking Dead, that was a really great, brought in a lot of horror elements, but also had the human elements. And I think that's what's really important here is you're capturing the humanity of this man who becomes a werewolf. And I think especially you see like the Wolfman style movies that have been coming out recently compared to what the original intent of that kind of a character was. It doesn't feel very sympathetic anymore. So I had Frank Darabont as my director. My Wolfman is Dave Batista. The town's leader who's hunting him down is The Rock. And and the old wizard in the, who was helping the Wolfman throughout his whole life treat his illness is played by Gary Oldman. And it's set in the early 1900s. So uh, Dave Batista, he's the Wolfman. He's been living in a, a shack essentially every time he the full moon comes around. He's living like a double life. You know, he has a normal life in the city. But when his time comes, he has to go out into the shack and live. And he's been using these potions that, his, that a wizard has been giving him from the woods to contain his rage, contain his strength. So he doesn't go on like a blind rampage and break out of the shack. But just like in the original, the blood moon comes along and a lot of his plans go awry. Like Joe said, he's impervious to silver bullets, but he's also even further enraged. He's even stronger than he normally is. And because of the blood moon the potions he normally uses are no longer effective. So after decades and decades of peacefully living his double life and protecting protecting the people by not attacking the town, he has made a mistake. And on his first, the very first moment of this blood moon, he's gone, he's attacked, and he's killed the townswoman. So now The Rock plays the leader of the town who's been tasked with hunting down the wolfman. And we're essentially getting The Rock versus Batista through this horror action thriller directed by Frank Darabont, who I think could capture that tone really, really well with his previous work. That's my pitch there. Okay. All right. Interesting. Um, Bobby, uh, do you have questions regarding, uh, regarding this one? Um, yeah. So the original, um, the blood moon kind of it, one of the things it did, it, it made his skin constantly like on fire, uh, which is what the effects couldn't quite pull off. Uh, which made him angry uh, and, you know, kind of in pain the whole time. Uh, so it was kind of like a double-edged sword. Do you guys have that as well to go along with the impervi- imperviousness to silver bullets? So it was Tristan. Uh, he's not literally on fire. He's boiling on the inside. He's in, he's so hot. And we do have a scene where that when the blood moon first affects him that he's kind of becoming inflamed, but I don't think we want to have him running around on fire the entire time. I think that, even if the effect looks good, that'll be something ridiculous. You know, he'll look like Ghost Rider or something like that. And I just don't think he's already scary enough as a big, crazy wolf man who's bigger and scarier and stronger than normal. He doesn't have to be on fire, too. Okay. Joe? Uh, yeah, the only difference is that he's not on fire the whole time. It's just uh, there is an homage to it in my movie where, like, the cartel fights out, tries fighting him by like pouring gasoline on him and lighting him on fire. And I mean, it lasts a few seconds. It's kind of an homage to the original, but the blood moon doesn't turn him on fire in my movie. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, I think my, my main only question, um, I just want you to guys to kind of get into this with your fight. It's not really a question. I think we've seen a lot of different werewolves on screen. Um, just kind of, Give me a good picture of why yours is more unique and actually scarier looking than a lot of the the werewolves we've seen. Because I feel like it either looks way too human or nowadays they just make it look way too much either similar to a wolf um, 
or just like not very scary looking. So just kind of in, into your fights, explain to me why your, your wolf is like something unique that'll bring me to the theater. All right. I got two things. So yeah. I'll, I'll start by answering your question and then I was going to defend my choice of director, but um, the, my werewolf basically looks like if you could think of it, it has like the body of a gorilla more like it. So it still has more of that like ape, humanish like body shape but it's still like massive and muscular with the head of a wolf and then like a wolf's tail it's not like a straight up wolf and it's not like a harry potter wolf or it's this like tiny little twig thing that's not really scary at all it's like this just massive you know seven foot tall just like heap of muscle covered in fur basically and then as far as my director choice like yeah he released a movie on netflix like two weeks ago but it's like this weird basically movie written by his kids almost that's like a 4.7 out of 10 on imdb like it's not the type of movies robert rodriguez should be making it's not the type of movies he does well i feel like this is more the type of movie he does well and not i mean the closest thing he's done to this in like 10 years almost is his episode of the mandalorian now you know where it's just a guy just ripping through people and then you know a 4.7 out of imdb is not the sign of a thriving career I I think actively making big budget movies is a sign of a thriving career. You know, if you want to attack Will Smith because he was just in movies that people didn't like, that doesn't mean that they're in that he's needing to have his career revived. You know, he made a movie that had a big budget, something that followed up on his previous work, something that people were excited for. I know the trailer when it came out got tons and tons of views. I watched it a few times because I was excited to see Shark Boy and Lava Girl back again. <laughs> but uh, I don't I don't think this counts as a reviving career. But I. Other than that, I do think that my movie is just better otherwise. I think my director, he worked on The Walking Dead. He's going to bring Greg Nicotero in, who did the effects on The Walking Dead, to make sure that this Wolfman looks awesome. You know, The Walking Dead, no matter how bad the story got, as it went along, the effects never got bad. They were always incredible. I could watch that show just for the zombie effects, and it would be amazing. So I think you could pull off a Wolfman that looks practical and looks realistic, but not just a big CGI like monster running around. And I think plus bringing Dave Batista in, he's already a big guy. You know, he's someone that you can, that you can just kind of enhance. You know, he doesn't need to. He doesn't need to be. He's not like he's going from tiny Bruce Banner to like a big wolf man. He's you can already buy him as a big, scary, intimidating force already. So just seeing that wolf added on top of him makes him really scary for me. And I think Dave Batista versus The Rock is a really exciting duo to fight. So I think having them as these dueling forces of the rock defending the town and Dave Batista as the Wolfman, who's the outsider who is now after making this one terrible mistake one night, he's now being hunted by the town that he once defended. And I think that's a really interesting, interesting way to take this character and make it different than all the Wolfman we've gotten over and over and over again. I think this is just a little interesting. Plus Frank Darabont, like you mentioned before, you put on from the director of the walking dead or people know what that is. People are still watching the walking dead, especially from Frank Darabont. Everybody loved the first season. And it kind of went off the rails from there. So I think if you kind of sell it as a point that he directed the first season and people loved that first season and people wanted to see him come back, but he was fired by MC and there was all this drama, I think this could be his big return. People love The Mist. People love Shawshank Redemption. He's a he's made movies people really, really like. And so I think that this could just be a great work for him. Okay. 
Joe, you got anything else to say? Yeah, my thing with his, against his is he has like Frank Darabont, which is creepy because I was like very close to doing the exact same thing he did of having doing same rule but using Frank Darabont. But my thing against his is I feel like his cast doesn't like his cast and his director don't really match up. Like his cat director usually does like these more like character piece type movies you know, with good actors and like Dave Bautista is a good actor, but then doing like a Frank Darabont movie with starring the rock and Dave Bautista just doesn't like line up in my head. And I feel like Gary Oldman is doing more like direct to DVD, like the Hitman's bodyguard type movies more than Oscar movies these days. So like a Gary Oldman <laughs> movie with uh, Dave Bautista and the rock directed by Frank Darabont just doesn't match up. Like where my movie is more like, I'm not going for like the character piece type movie, but I feel like, you know, Pedro Pascal and Oscar Isaac and uh, Robert Rodriguez, like that lines up more. And it's a type of movie that knows what it is. It's like a fun action revenge movie. Uh, you know, where the reason like cops going against the cartel, but he becomes a werewolf at night. I think Dave Bautista and The Rock would be really fun for this because they have these big thriving careers as action stars, but they haven't really gotten a chance to shine in, in more more focused stuff. This isn't something that's going to be giving them Oscar nominations, but this is something that's going to be showing that they had the potential to be dramatic actors in a way, you know? And I think that we've seen Batista in stuff like Blade Runner, where he's kind of more relaxed. He's not playing Drax. We, 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 I think it should be a good chance for him to really show off his potential as an actor while also using his physicality to his advantage. So I think that's a good mix. Plus the rock, he's had an incredible action career, but I think, he needs to be doing more stuff like this. More stuff is a little bit smaller. Or he's playing a villain a little bit different than his normal characters. So I definitely think this is a great choice. And Gary Oldman was literally an Oscar contender this year. So I don't know what you're talking about directed DVD movies. Like he didn't even win an Oscar like two years ago. Yeah, but he's what I'm saying is he's doing more of like the bad like action movies more now. Like he still does the Oscar movies, but it feels like if you look at his IMDb, it's like for every good movie there's like four like bad ones right, I, personally i don't need to hear more about the gary oldman thing because yeah. i just think that whole argument is, is moot and i don't quite understand joe's point on that <laughs> one <laughs> yeah I, I don't really get that argument either so we'll drop that I, I don't think there's really much else i need to hear bobby is there anything else like you need to hear either touched up on or do you have your decision um made? i just need so tristan i know you you gave a defense but do, why would would Frank Darabont cast Dave Bautista in The Rock? That's kind of what I want to know. I think he does a great job of bringing performances out of people. You could say, oh, the guy who plays Daryl Dixon, he has, what is he, Boondock Saints? And then all of a sudden in The Walking Dead, he's really great. You know, you, he made Morgan Freeman be instantly become like a, a classic that we all know from Shawshank Redemption. He's been able to take people, like the actor who played Andy Dufresne, what have you seen him in? But he managed to make that guy have a great performance in Shawshank. And I think he could really take advantage. I think he enjoys working with actors like this, people who want to shine and show off what they can do. And I think especially it's out of his normal comfort zone too, but it's something that he can still has experience with, with The Walking Dead, with The Mist. He he likes working in this kind of genre. So I think this is a good comeback for him, especially after so many years away. This is kind of a good comeback for him. You get fun actors. You're not selling it off of Frank Darabont, especially you're selling it off of Dave Bautista, The Rock, in this more out-of-character movie, this horror action movie. It's not really an action movie. It's more of like a horror thriller. That's something you normally see them in. That's something people would, people would really, I think, be excited to see. These actors okay. they know out of their comfort zone. Okay. 
that's kind of the last thing I was just trying to, cause I understand Joe's home. Like I, I get your whole pitch. I just kind of needed that from Tristan. So I'm all set, Johnny. Do you have uh, your ruling or at least your thoughts? Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll probably make up the final one again on this one, but yeah, my thing, every single example Tristan just said was a terrible example um, comparing them to the rock and Dave Bautista. But I do think there is a good example in there with Michael Clark Duncan. He got a great performance out of, out of him, who's who was before that only cast as like this physical guy, and and he has a very emotional performance in the Green Mile. So I think Tristan made the point, but then used the complete wrong people as examples because either those people were not big stars before, um, so Darabont can kind of mold them, or they had already done serious acting before, like Morgan Freeman. Um, but that being said. Man, I, I don't think those actors are a good fit with Frank Darabont. I don't really see two big action stars then being in a movie that the movie that Tristan uh, described. I think it would be more of a fun action movie with those two in it. And I would definitely see that. But it sounds a little more serious. And um, I would have liked something a little more horror out of this pitch. Joe, same thing. And there's nothing horror that's going to be in your pitch. It's going to be a fun, dumb action movie. Um as well. And I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Wolf Cop that's on Hulu currently. That was basically like a straight DVD film, but it's literally the movie that Joe oh, well, I'm going to go watch that then because that sounds um, It's it is It is entertaining, <laughs> but it's a very bad movie. But yeah, it's about a cop who blacks out, becomes a werewolf, and then it kind of gets into cartel type issues. I know your movie at the end, he's not going to be a wolfman in a cop's uniform shooting people, <laughs> but Wolf Cop, I recommend it. It's insane. Uh, is it, is it directed by the same guy that did Samurai Cop? Or Robert it, Rodriguez? Might well, it might as well be directed by Robert Rodriguez, honestly. Um, but also there's another episode of uh, the remake of Creep Show that is on um, Shudder. That is also like the other aspects of what Joe described, which is a werewolf locked up and telling these people like, kill me. You don't want it to like get nighttime. So it was funny that Joe described that. And I was like, I don't think he's seen either of these things, but his <laughs> plot, I've seen the whole plot basically in, in two other projects. Um, personally, I think it comes down to who direct, who resurrected a better director's career. I don't love, um, I don't love either pitch, but I would see both movies and I would rather see, um, a fun, dumb action movie with Dave Bautista in The Rock than a bad action movie made by Robert Rodriguez because the last one I watched by him was Alita Battle Angel, and that movie was hot trash. So I can't go see another big-budget like action movie. I want Robert Rodriguez maybe to stick with TV for a while. I don't think he's a good fit for, for the movie Joe uh, described. So that's where I lean on it, Bobby, but what uh, what's uh, your decision on it? I was split for most of this because they're like, the reason I asked that question to Tristan is I, I really liked the movie that you described and I really like Frank Darabont as the choice, but I don't think they fit together. Um, but the problem is with Joe's, I think yours sounded a little too generic, like, like a lot of Wolfman movies, but I think Robert Rodriguez who did just do a really great episode of, of Mandalorian. I loved the action in that but it didn't really tell a story and everything that I've seen him do recently that tells any type of long form story. I, I haven't liked, and I didn't think he pulled that off very well. Um, so just because I think Frank Darabond is a better director than Robert Rodriguez, 
and could get good performances out of actors that may not fit his style, I think I'm leaning towards Tristan on this one. But it was really close. I, I could have could have gone either way. Yeah, I, I think it's tough when one of the directors, Robert Rodriguez, honestly, like I know he's a big name and his episode of The Mandalorian is, it was good, but he's a bad director. Like his biggest movie in the last 30 years was Sin City and that movie sucks. So like, that's my thing with, with him is I, I don't think resurrecting just because someone hasn't made a good movie in a long time is exactly the best thing to resurrect. At least Darabont just kind of shied away from making movies. Robert Rodriguez has been making movies, but they've all been terrible. So I think that was kind of my, my uh, deciding factor too on that one, Bobby. So Joe, you lost that one. Um, so where are we going next? You got to try to tie it up. Uh, I fought the law and uh, I'll, I'll uh, let Tristan go first this time. About time Tristan gets to go <laughs> first on one of these. I Fought the Law came out in 1983. It has a solid 17% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, here we go. This musical coming-of-age comedy stars a young Charlie Sheen as a rebellious high schooler rallying his classmates against their unfair principle. Featuring 1970s and early 1980s rock, this movie flopped because the relatively unknown Charlie Sheen couldn't quite deliver the rock vocals required. Um, I wouldn't say that's the only reason this one flopped, but that was a big criticism of it. Um, so Tristan, what do you got for us for I Fought the Law? For my I Fought the Law, I brought in a director that I think is very experienced with modern musicals. And I mentioned him in the last episode we did either for our top 20 of the decade. Uh, it's John Carney. Who directed Sing Street and Once and Begin Again, all really good musical movies. And I think he does a great job with these kind of in-universe in music movies where the, the characters are singing as they're doing it. And it, it doesn't feel cheesy. It doesn't feel like Cats. You know, it feels it feels like a modern musical. It's, it feels like it's using modern filmmaking, modern structure. It feels like a movie more than a musical. So that's why I picked him. And for my cast, we mentioned that Charlie Sheen is not a good singer, so I pick people who are. Uh, I have Harry Styles and Zendaya as my two main leads, who are both experienced actors and also experienced performers, so I think they have the vocal chops and the acting chops to pull off a fun, just kind of fun rom coming-of-age movie that, that is John Carney telling the story of these two characters, and, the, and of course uh, the principal that they're fighting against. Who else could play him except for Gary Busey? So I'm using Gary Busey in this movie, and he's playing a unhinged, uh, over, overprotective principal who wants everyone to wear perfect uniforms and always stand in line. And his hair is all coursed all over the place. And he's been doing he's been a principal for far too long, and probably snorted a lot of coke before he became a principal. And his brain is shot. <laughs> and these two characters, they're from two different sides of the school. Harry Styles is the popular pretty boy who uh, is bound to be doing some kind of, you know, he's going to be a, a politician or he's going to be a performer. He's going to be something that surely will take advantage of his looks. And Zendaya is the punk, the skateboarder. She'd rather be at home or, or skating with her friends than going to school. And when both of these characters get detention together in the first act, we see them come together and realize they both hate this school. And maybe these two separate classes of people who are the popular kids and the nerdy kids can come together and rebel against this crazy principal who's overbearing and using his power against them 
And I said it in the 1990s rather than the 80s because after Wonder Woman 1984, I'm officially tired of 80s things and I just want to move on from 80s nostalgia. I think we're over it. <laughs> so I think move on to another decade. I think the 90s, especially in this decade, are going to become like the new nostalgia decade. So I think getting up ahead of that right now, tributing it with 90s style music performed by these kids who are around our age and probably grew up in the 90s and have some nostalgia for it themselves. So that's my movie. I fought the law. It's a 90s coming of age, two people coming together against their principal movie. John Carney, great musical director. Okay. All right. And um, Joe, what do you got for us? All right. Uh, so I'm just going to open up uh, the movie. or I made I Fought the Law a foreign film, specifically a South Korean film. Uh, my director is Benson Lee, who directed Soul Searching, which is a good South Korean coming-of-age movie, and that's Soul, S-E-O-U-L. I just appreciated the pun on that one. And then he also directed Battle of the Year, which is a musical dance movie. That was really good. And then, yeah, I'm sure you're a big fan. Hey, I watched it. <laughs> I'm uh, sure you did. And then uh, my main... Uh, I didn't name these characters, but my main guy is going to be played by... Uh, Lee Jong Suk, which is like he's like an award-winning uh, actor, actually watched, and he's a singer as well, and actually watched like stuff of him singing and acting, and he's really good. And then his dad in the movie is going to be played by uh, Dong Suk Ma, who is who is uh, in Train to Busan. He was like the expectant father in Train to Busan, and he was also in the Outlaws, and he's going to be in uh, the Eternals, the MCU movie coming up. So uh, Jong Suk Lee plays a conscript soldier in the south korean army whose goal is to be a world famous k-pop singer every day he posts a new oh mine takes place present day every day he posts a new video on youtube of him singing a different pop song from around the world hoping to get noticed by someone at yg entertainment the biggest label in south korea unfortunately for him he is under the rule of a very strict military general who is also his father so he has to sneak around and not get caught he works with his friends who help him with his cause uh, they lend him phones uh, he uses to record himself. They distract those in command to give him time to record. Uh, he eventually gets noticed by someone who wants him to perform at his club just outside the base. However, he has important training at the same time. He decides to pursue his dream and skip training, ready to face the consequences. His dad is looking for him and eventually gets to where his son is, or eventually gets where his son is out of one of his son's friends. His dad storms the club and sees his son performing his favorite song. Uh, the dad says when his military duty is over, he will get him in touch with someone who served under him, who currently runs a music label called YG Entertainment. And that's my pitch. It's a good coming-of-age story about a relationship between a father and a son featuring, you know, various pop songs. Okay. All right. Um, <clears throat> I'll start with my question this time. Um, now, I have seen work by Joe... I've seen Soul Searching. I think it's actually a really fantastic uh, coming of age movie. It's a very it's funny because it's a it's a Korean film, but it is very like throwback to uh, John Hughes. And Tristan, you had some aspects that can seem similar to like old John Hughes movies, like um, the detention and you know rebelling against the principal. I think I have a better idea of what Joe's tone is. Tristan, you're going to have to tell me what your tone is because I feel like the movie. You pitched sounded like a comedy, especially with Gary Busey in it. But having never seen Begin Again or Sing Street, I don't think these those were either like huge comedies. They had comedic moments in them, but they were more focused on characters and, and musicals. So kind of just both of you a little bit, but Tristan more so. Get into your tone for me. 
I'll go first and I'll say uh, John Carney has that kind of just fun, whimsical kind of style, especially in Sing Street, which is his biggest hit for sure. Uh, it's not taking itself super seriously, it's just having fun. And there's heart to it, but you're not there for the drama, you're there for the fun. And I think this movie is all about the fun. Gary Busey playing that principal is fun. Here, seeing Harry Styles and Zendaya together on screen would be very fun. And this whole movie just about feeling good and having fun and liking the music. And that's what John Carney does so well. All right. And, um, and Joe, is yours going to be more of a kind of a throwback style to John Hughes? Or is it going to be more of a modern day coming of age because you said it modern day? Uh, I mean, it's going to be, I don't know if you've seen the movie, uh, the show on Netflix, Sex Education, but it's set in modern day, but there's also like a lot of the tone and stuff is throwback to uh, like earlier times. And it's going to be kind of like that. It's going to be set in modern day, but you're going to have, it's a lot of the classic, like, hey, here's the guy in charge and we're all kind of rebelling against him. And they, you know, there's comedic moments where they're like sneaking around, hiding from his dad and other moment, other people in command. But you're also like when his dad is out looking for him, you're like nervous for him because you like don't know what's going to happen. It's not like, oh, like it's comedic and fine and it'll be fine and everything will work out. Like there's, you're, there's moments where you're nervous, but it's a lot of like comedic and stuff going on too. I think it's a good balance. All right. Um, and Bobby, you got a question for him before they duke it out? Yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of the music that was used in this movie. Um, and then the like the title song, obviously, I Fought the Law. As it says, I Fought the Law and the Law Won. Um, so in the original, Charlie Sheen is, um, uh, the principal has him expelled at the end of the movie, kind of in reference to the song. Uh, do you have any kind of ending that is similar to that first one or references to the music that kind of follow through? Joe, I'll start with you. Oh yeah, actually, like I said, he, he, you know, he's really nervous, and his dad storms him, all ready to yell at him. But he hears him singing his favorite song, and it like kind of like chills him out and calms him down. And that's actually his dad's favorite song, is "I Fought the Law." But okay. throughout mine, there's like various pop songs, you know, pop songs from like the '80s, the '90s, you know, the 2000s, 2010s that he's singing on, and releasing on YouTube. And like, there's various montages, you know, there's K-pop songs in there that like more Korean audiences would notice and stuff like that and there's okay. other things throughout but i fought the law is kind of so there is that homage to that in the original gotcha tristan i i have it a very 90s heavy soundtrack it's uh since it pl- takes place in the 90s all these characters are gonna be listening to 90s music but i also have an older brother of zendaya who is uh a little bit older than her and knows all the 80s music and the hits from that era so he's like trying to tell her oh back in my day these songs were good and these songs are good and he's trying to get her to listen to like his generation of music and she's making listen to hers and we kind of get this musical bonding moment. I think John Carney really does a good job of portraying like the power of music within people to inspire people or to bring people together or to make you feel a specific emotion at a certain time and how music can be tied to a certain era, a certain event in your life. So I think he would really capture the power of all the different eras of music, but especially this era of eighties and nineties music that we're covering here. And in reference to the ending, Harry Styles does get expelled at the end. He's a kid who's pretty boy, popular guy, good at school, getting all the good grades. But at the end, he becomes like the sacrifice for the student rebellion. And he's the scapegoat and he gets he puts himself on the line for other people, which is something that he normally wouldn't do. And that's kind of his development. He stands up and sacrifices his career and his academic career, essentially, for this. And that's his that's his arc in the movie. So I definitely reference that at the end. It follows a similar arc there. Okay, All right. I like it. All right, I'm ready for him to fight it out, Johnny. Yeah. Um, uh, Tristan, uh, you start this time. Tell me why your movie is superior. 
I've mentioned it over and over, but John Carney is, I think, a great choice for this. I think Sing Street puts him on the map, and I think you give him something like this, people will come and see it. And you give him Harry Styles and Zendaya, they'll come and see it. I think they both have an appeal to younger generations, too. So people would be really happy to see these two actors on stage. I think Harry Styles, just in the last couple of weeks or month or however long it's been since he had that cover shoot, he's been in the news a lot. More people are talking about Harry Styles than ever before after that. He was, if you don't know, he posed in typically female clothing, like dresses and things like that for the covers of, for a magazine photo shoot. And that was not happy to some of the more conservative voices on the internet who called him out for being, you know, all the different names I'll use for people who they don't like that don't present their ideal masculine form or whatever. But he got a lot of props for that from a lot of big name people. And I think that is really going to put him on the map, especially after Dunkirk. I think this could be very interesting to see what he has and story has another movie coming out next year they're supposed to be this year so where he's the lead in that so i think he's having he's gonna have a really good acting career and i think this could be good for him so i really like my cast i really like my tone i love my director i think he can capture the music perfectly i think that joe's could have been a lot better if he used like bts or something like use some known pop group as their front and sell it as like this bts movie or something that would have big big u.s appeal like if you, you make a a actual musical with BTS in it and like women are going to flock to the theaters all over the United States to see that movie. I know plenty of people, men and women who love BTS and would go see that movie day one. So I, if I was making that movie, I would be doing it. I would be doing it with BTS. I would be selling it with real pop stars. You can perform and sell tickets. And I think that mine ultimately this sounds like a much more entertaining movie, something that I would love to see and something I think captures a heart of music and the power of music, which I think is what this movie should be all about. Yeah. My, my whole thing with why I didn't want to uh, cast BTS is more just because it's not like this big dance, like performing type movie. It's like the smaller movie. I wanted to make sure I had the right actor. And I feel like if you do K-pop music, like K-pop, the type of people that would see a movie because of BTS, are still going to see like a K-pop centric movie. I feel like you don't necessarily need, bts to be in the movie and like they could be on the soundtrack or something and be like oh bts was involved in this movie and you're just gonna get the same exact people but i wanted to make sure my acting and all of that was on point so i was more focused on that in regards to the marketing of this movie because usually on this podcast we're not really concerned with like oh how would they market this movie it's more just like is the movie good and so that's what i was focusing on more and i feel like mine i like the story of mine where it's like you have kind of the story of the original but i wanted to focus on like a father-son story and them kind of coming together even though they're different one is like this military the dad's this strict military general that the son sees it's like he's always been this way he's never had fun and then the son you know you know he's conscripted in the military and he wants to do a good job but he really doesn't care he cares more about being a famous singer and being a famous k-pop star and then when he finds out at the end, like his dad's favorite song was I Fought the Law, it makes him see him in a whole different light and it helps their relationship. And, you know, his dad, you know, sees how much music means to him by and decides to help him out and tells him he knows someone that can help his career and get him where he wants to be. I really like the bonding in my movie, too, of seeing these people who are from very different groups come together and see their similarities more than their differences and seeing that together we can work to fix the problems and, and, and fight against our shared enemy. And I think that's something that we can, would be good to have in a movie today. Not, it's not going to be like a blatantly 
deep theme or anything, but it's just you're seeing these people who otherwise wouldn't get along bonding through music and bonding through rebellion and finding a shared goals and shared ideas for their lives. I think that's something that could be really interesting, seeing people from totally different lives coming together and and sharing their their goals together. I think that's just something I would love to see more than just, oh, I want to be a K-pop star. Hopefully I can be. Yeah, I mean, you still have the mind with the father and son being different and music bringing them together. Um, all right. I, I think I've heard, I've heard enough. I mean, I think I got my mind pretty much made up on this, but uh, tell me what, if you were in charge this time, where would you go? Um, I mean, honestly, I would probably want to hear, like, it's tough because you're, you're much more of a fan of the foreign, like, movies than I am. Uh, but to me, uh, Tristan sounded like one that personally I would want to watch, but Joe sounded also like a, a good movie. Like it sounded well done. Um, but if I were judging it and was a fan of the music and how it was used, I think Tristan picked someone that I think is like two leads that are really, really good singers. And I think can carry a movie. Um, and I, and I'd like to see Gary Busey as a crazy principal. So I'm leaning that way, but I'm honestly like 51 49 on it because I am just not, like Joe sounded really good. I just don't know a lot about, you know, the the um, the foreign actors or any of the songs as as much that would be used. Well, mine would still have because like American songs are still over there. Mine would still have like yeah. a decent amount of American yeah. in the movie. But that's where and, where I'm leaning. Uh, so, and and here's my thing with it. I think um, I was kind of the same way. Um, and a couple things happened in the argument that that swayed me. I didn't exactly get uh, the tone of Tristan's when it first started, but I understood it by the end. He explained his character moments. It's still going to have humor, especially with Gary Busey, but I do think he can kind of play a scarier performance um, as well as like it being humorous. I do like his character moment at the end of the movie of the popular kid who, you know, is going to be the politician or the famous dude. Um, I think Tristan described uh, Harry Styles character very well that, I can picture that scene fully of him being expelled, maybe taking the fall because Zendaya, the skateboarder, if she gets expelled, is never going anywhere. But he knows that he can kind of take the fall and still have opportunities that other people don't. I like that uh, character moment. Joe had a very strong director. I love uh, Soul Searching. I recommend it to anyone who hasn't seen it. I think I found it on Amazon Prime, but it's probably because I have a couple um, foreign movie channels through Prime um, that I watched it on. I think Joe hurt his argument by involving any American songs. I think if you fully embraced K-pop and actually stuck with this embracing K-pop, which is a phenomenon in America without needing um, American songs, I think you could have won this argument. But my deciding factor was I think Tristan described his character moments better and Joe kind of strayed away from the K-pop aspect and it really, really hurt your pitch for me that you decided to throw in having American songs and references like that. I think your movie would be much stronger as just a fully foreign film with with K-pop and embracing that that aspect. So that was my deciding factor, although I would definitely book, see both these movies. I think both of these were, were excellent pitches. Maybe so far tonight, I think these two pitches were your best pitches of the night, and they went up against each other, um, which is tough. So I had to just look for basically nitpicks to kind of get me um, uh, to decide who won. So 
that brings uh, Joe into a little bit of a hole. He's going to have to dig himself out of because that brings Tristan up three to one. So, Joe, where are you feeling confident? Where are you winning your point back? We'll see. Nervous. I'm going to go with ah, Beyond the Burger, and I'll go first. Okay. All right. Beyond the Burger uh, came out in 1997. It... uh, despite the name, it is 78% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, the psychological thriller directed by Paul Cox about a cook named George, played by Christian Slater, um, working at a fast food chain, uh, slowly starts to lose his mind. He believes he is visited by strange beings from another dimension. The film was praised for its commentary on mental health and um, ambiguity, but most, uh, most credit its box office failure to audiences not taking it seriously due to the film's title. That was a heavy criticism of the film. So, Joe, beyond the burger, give it to me. All right, so my director is going to be the Safdie Brothers, uh, and my George is going to be played by Jake Gyllenhaal. So, George is a fry cook in New York who gets mugged after leaving work. He spends weeks in the hospital and racks up thousands of dollars in medical bills. George is super stressed out, on the way to work, he is sitting on the subway when a strange man sits next to him and says, how about them Jets? I think they have a shot on Sunday. George says the Jets are terrible and have no shot. Later that evening, he is sitting at home, combing through his medical bills and looks up the odds on the Jets. On a whim, he com- calls a bookie and places a bet on the Jets, and it hits. A few days later, a crazy homeless man, and this is where my rule comes in because the homeless man is played by Gary Busey, offers George a half-eaten sandwich. George repeatedly refuses, but the homeless man insists. George reluctantly takes it. A few blocks later, a large aggressive dog starts following George and begins to chase him down. George throws the sandwich at him. The dog grabs the sandwich and goes away. A few more instances like this occur, and George begins to feel like these aren't just crazy people, but since they know the future, they are beings from another dimension. His family and friends think he has lost it. George begins to fall way behind on his medical bills and has debt collectors calling him all of the time. He goes for a walk. The walk lasts for hours and into the morning. He sees a homeless woman. The homeless woman keeps talking about the banks and how they're evil and hoard hoard their money. She then drops a gun and walks away. George picks up the gun and looks over at the bank, just starting to open across the street. George grabs the gun and robs the bank. As soon as he runs out, police sirens can be heard. George again runs into a homeless man, but before he can speak, we cut to credits, unsure if they are, really are beings from another universe helping George, or if it was all just a coincidence. And then I'm also changing the name of the movie to Fried, because he's a fried cook, and when he claims to be visited by beings from another dimension, his friends and family say his brain is fried, and I just feel like it's a better title than Beyond the Burger. Okay, all right, interesting. Um, Tristan, what do you got for us? All right, for mine, I, I'll start off by saying the rule I used right up front. I used a film, an acting duo. And my acting duo was Jesse Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart. They've been in, I think, four movies together right now. And I think Kristen Stewart especially is on a really good kick recently. So I think she would be a really fascinating character, uh, actress to have in a movie like this. Uh, and my director is Charlie Kaufman. He just recently did, I think, I'm thinking of ending things. He did Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind adaptation, movies that are all about people uh, losing their minds. And then he kind of captures that through the through the movie, through doing kind of strange things. You know, in, in Eternal Sunshine, he's traveling through various different moments of his past, and he knows how to express that through the 
making of the of, of the movie. And I think I think if anything just does that really well too. You're seeing time kind of manipulate around the character. So I think Charlie Kaufman could really do a confined character losing their mind piece really well. Uh, and I, I have my loner fast food cook, also named George, like the original. I have him played by Jesse Eisenberg. Uh, he's a loner. He works late nights. He doesn't really have a lot of friends. And his only social connection is to the cashier at his restaurant. Uh, played by His name is Kat. She's played by Kristen Stewart. And I think uh, they come together when he, one night, mysteriously, he's walking back to his car late at night and he's abducted by beings from another world. He's taken to some kind of interdimensional spaceship and he's experimented on and he has all kinds of crazy exper- experiences. And he wakes up the next morning in the parking lot, not really sure what happened. He can't remember much of what happened the night before. And he goes inside and meets up with Kate. And she, and she says, oh, that was crazy what happened last night, right? And he says, what do you mean? And she says, oh, you came over to my place last night. I didn't expect you to call. And he realizes that he had this whole crazy night that he doesn't remember while he was abducted by these aliens. So he spills to Kristen uh, Stewart's character and tells her, you know, I think something really weird happened to me. And together they go through and investigate this increasingly bizarre mystery of what happened to him and what they did that night and retracing his steps. And he goes, he goes back and for example, he'll go to some crazy nightclub he's never been to before. And they'll say, Oh yeah, we saw you last night. You were shit faced and you were puking and you were talking to this guy in the back. And then they say, Oh, what guy? And they go and talk to this guy and he leads into another guy and they go on this kind of bizarre sort of surreal goose chase that I think Charlie Kaufman could do really well. Something like adaptation where you, you're not even sure what's real and what's not by the end of it because these two, these characters are kind of unraveling through their own isolation. And we get bonding between these characters. I think Jesse Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart have a good chemistry together. Even in uh, stuff that isn't necessarily great, I think that they can both, they've both really shined recently. I think especially Kristen Stewart is having a revival in her career. She's not just the girl from Twilight anymore. She's had a lot of good stuff. So I'd be very interested in seeing what she does next. And Jesse Eisenberg, he's up and down, but I think with a good director like Charlie Kaufman, that would be one of his ups. He does a really good job working with kind of zany, strange actors like David Thewlis, like Nick Cage, and like Jim Carrey and getting a really good performance out of them. So I think that he would get a great performance out of both of these actors and capture the crazy, bizarre adventure they go on throughout this whole night. That's my pitch. All right, my my main question is Tristan. Kristen Stewart and Jesse Eisenberg, have they done more than one movie together? Yeah, they've been in three or four now at this point. Johnny, you need I to listen know. to whenever they say how many they're in. Because both times I mean I heard him say it and I and I just can't picture them as like American Ultra is the only movie I think that isn't like maybe some small movie that they're both in. I think they were in like that. They were in what, Cafe Society, Society together. They had one other one together. And this is going for that yeah, kind yeah. of small, like auteur kind of movie. We're not going for like a blockbuster here. This is just going to be like a Charlie Kaufman movie. People will, this is not something that's going to be, you know, top of the box office. It's something that'll be film fans will like it. And people who want to see these performances will like it, but it's not trying to like, you know, sell thousands and thousands of tickets and make millions of dollars. It's just an art piece, essentially. I get it. I get it based on the movie you described. I just think maybe I should have been more specific when I did this yeah. rule. Because I didn't picture either of the people that so far I won't knock you because I don't picture Joe's movie either. They're not famous acting duos. It's not like 
Owen Wilson and Ben Stiller and people like that. I, 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 will, I will say that I researched this a lot it. and almost every article I pulled up, like top acting duos had Kristen Stewart and Jesse, uh, Jesse Eisenberg on it. So I, I definitely looked it up because I liked them a lot, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't know if I would consider them famous or not, but I, I did the research and I thought that they, they seemed like the, yeah. we backed it up. Adventureland's a relatively like, I like people know that. Oh, movie. I forgot about that movie. Yeah. So there, there's at least a All few. Right, that's another one. Okay, that's something. Um, I was mainly focused on how shitty American Ultra was, but Bobby, what's your question for these two? Um, so mine is just like based on in the original movie, because you're not really supposed to know if he's going crazy or not. Every time the aliens show up, they kind of show up in a different form, refer- referencing other aliens in other movies. Um, so like Alien, Predator, Star Wars. Do you have any kind of references to anything like that do the aliens change forms or is it just kind of they look the same throughout if they if they show up i'll start with you tristan uh yeah i make a reference to that because he has this bizarre experience where he sees like these really big gray kind of aliens like classical like big head really long arm aliens and the people that he's meeting as he goes along this adventure it turns out are people who also had alien abductions in their lives and he when he tells them oh i was i saw these gray guys with these big heads and they and they said no that's not really aliens my aliens were green men with like a glass like helmets on and they all have these ideas of they, through their mind they because in my mind when you're you're talking about aliens it's, it's like a human brain kind of trying to compute something totally unbelievable like you're seeing a shape you've never seen you're seeing colors you've never seen so you're just kind of maybe jesse eisenberg filled in the big gray men that he knows as aliens, but maybe somebody else filled in like Mars attacks as his aliens. Somebody else probably filled in like, and that's just their mind kind of coping. Maybe that's what, that would be a theory that I think, because Charlie Kaufman does that where he leaves things kind of ambiguous where people are kind of trying to debate on what he meant by certain things. So I think that would be something you leave ambiguous of how real these aliens actually were. Okay. I like that. Joe. Oh uh, yeah. Mine, like they're all like the people that, he talks to are all like just like various like homeless people or like weird just people on the street they're not like they look like human especially with the safety brothers directing you know i wanted to keep it very grounded and very realistic and someone can interpret it at the end of the movie as oh he thought they were like aliens or beings from another dimension but it was all just kind of a coincidence and like he that's how much he had lost his mind as he thought these weird people random people talking to him were like aliens trying to send him secret messages when really it was just like every average everyday people talking to him okay all right and then kind of to lead you into the fight i just need to hear joe because i asked in the um, Tristan, a specific question, Joe, the Softy brothers so far, they've made two movies and the whole movies were praised. And I love them because of all the tension and both films are really about very unlikable people who keep making the wrong and wrong and wrong decision. And it just leads them deep and further into a rabbit hole. Your movie seems kind of opposite of that. I know it ends in maybe a way that's somewhat like that. But through your movie, things keep going right for him. So why did you change, like, basically the thematics and the, the you know, the kind of the aspects of what the Softy Brothers have shown? Why does your movie fit with them as uh, directors? Well, I think also with them only having directed two movies, 
you know, it's, you know, somewhat like they say it takes three to make a pattern. So it's also somewhat hard to exactly say like what their filmography will be moving forward. You know, and I don't know if they'll necessarily make that movie every time. How many directors do you look at and be like, oh, they're all of their movies have the exact same theme every time. And it kind of is like a play off the previous two movies. Like it's this guy and like there's certain aspects that stay the same. Like he has no money already. He owes a, sh- a shit ton of money to like the for the medical bills, and he takes the little bit of money he has and you know bets it on a football game and bets it on like a bad team and and stuff like that. And there's a lot of instances like that where he does make the wrong decision, but it always seems to work out. And that's what's driving it in his head that uh, these are like uh, outside dimensions. He's like, okay, I, they keep talking to me and they keep telling me to do this thing, and it always works out. And so that's, and then you have the ambiguous thing at the end with like the cops chasing him, where it's like, okay, did it work out that time? Are there aliens? And you still kind of have that ambiguous ending that the Safety brothers have. So it's like a little bit of a departure from the previous movie, but it also keeps a lot of the same things where it doesn't feel completely out of left field for what they've done in the past. All right. That answers my, my question. Um, so, all right, since Joe just kind of spoke, though, Tristan, I'm going to start you off. Why is your movie uh, uh, better? I think my movie is really interesting. I think Charlie Kaufman, he was off for a while. I think before the, last year, you could have used him as a revival director's career rule. But uh, thinking of anything, put him back on the map a bit. People are suddenly talking about him again. So I think you give him a little – some actors have a little bit of of uh, appeal, and you're making him a little – a little bit of a step up from what he did before from a thinking of ending things to this movie now. And I think that could be very interesting development for his career. I think he, I know he can use, he can make you feel as disoriented as the characters are through his movies. And I think not know, not being able to trust what you're seeing on the screen when you're meeting these characters and not being able to trust what they're saying is true, because I think that puts you right in the head of Jesse Eisenberg's character, right in the head of Kristen Stewart's character. You're feeling lost and confused, just unraveling this mystery moment by moment as they do and i think that's there's something that be i know it's a movie for me that i would i know i love this movie myself so <laughs> it's something that i'd watch over and over and over again so i made this movie as one that for me this should be awesome i don't know if you guys would love it but it was one of those ones where i was like, you know what i'm just gonna go with the one that i know i would love and i know people who have similar tastes to me would love so i made this one for me and i don't know i just think that i think it'd be great and i hope that <laughs> you guys watch more charlie kaufman Right, yeah, my, my, yeah, Joe, make it make it quick. I got my decision for sure. I don't all right, know about- I only have like one small point against his. Like I've you know defended my movie. I think people have a good handle on my movie. My thing against Tristan's is just I feel like as he was pitching it, it just felt like the Hangover, but like weird. It's just these people, a guy that doesn't remember last night, going from person to person, and he's being told like, oh, like you got to go here because I talked to this person. And, oh, you talked to this person. It just it just felt almost like I've seen it before, but just in like a comedic form and not a serious form. And I was just like, I don't know. It just felt like I've seen it before. And so that's the only really thing I had. All right. Um, yeah, Bobby, you tell me what, what your thoughts are um, and then I'll, I'll rule on this one. Yeah. Um, so Tristan's to me, like I, I liked the idea at first, but um, Charlie Kaufman, I mean, he's definitely has a, has a very particular style, especially I'm thinking of ending things like that movie is that's, that's a bizarre movie. Like that is definitely for a very specific crowd. And I feel like that might be more what you're going for. You're, as you said, it's more for your taste, but it would have its crowd. And I think it would have it like critical acclaim um, because Charlie Kaufman can do that. Um, but 
Joe's to me with the Safdie brothers and kind of changing their pattern, but keep kind of keeping the same. It's like, it's keeping their pattern, but changing the outcome a little bit as far as what's happening, but he's making the wrong decisions, but it's working out for him. Um, I think that would be a more interesting movie to me. Uh, personally, I, I just think, and changing the name to fried, I think was good. Uh, you had a good like reasoning for that. So I'm leaning Joe on this one personally. Yeah, I think Joe kept enough of the themes of the original where I won't knock him for changing it too much. I, I think um, it was a very good use of directors that don't do anything, like have never dabbled in anything like sci-fi and putting it in a way that um, still kind of relates to the original movie, but um, doesn't dig into like the crazier aspect as much. I, I like that. Um and Tristan, I recently watched, I'm thinking of ending things. Uh, if you're into it, I'm sure it's fine. But that movie I found infuriating. Um, and Jesse Eisenberg, I think, is the worst actor in all of Hollywood. And he sucks. So I'm never going to pick a movie with him as the star. So, Joe, you win Fried or Beyond the Burger, as it was originally. And I, I just want to bring up a point that I wasn't going to bring up while y'all were arguing about it. Every list I saw that had Chris Evans and Scarlett Johansson as a famous acting duo also had Jesse Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart. So I wasn't going <laughs> yeah. to bring that up and defend Tristan for him. So. That's what I, I just was wondering because I just, I mean, I didn't look up um, famous acting duos like as far as researching goes. So if you guys came upon them as you researched them, I'm not going to hold it against you. But um, I will hold using Jesse Eisenberg against you. Um. And that brings us to uh, Joe trying to tie it up with the next movie. But Tristan, try to finish things. What movie are we doing next? You got two options. All right. Like I do got two options. I'm going to go with one that I feel a little bit more confident about, which is The Distant Future. The Distant Future. All right. Um, This movie came out in 1992. It has a 22% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, taking place in the futuristic world of 2021. Humans have been enslaved by robots. Mankind's only hope is a rebellion led by a young man named Damon, played by Corey Feldman. Uh, the Steve Barron-directed film was supposed to be his big follow-up after the su- success of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but instead was a critical failure and a box office bomb. We obviously chose this one because it was one of the only ones I could think of that actually has 2021 as its its future. So I figure now that we're in the year, it would be relevant um, only in basically that aspect. So Tristan, you said you were going first? Yeah, I'll go first on this one. All right, what do you got for us? Uh, My distant future, my director, I use Francis Lawrence. He did Catching Fire in the Hunger Games trilogy. He did I Am Legend. I think he'd capture this kind of post-apocalypse movie pretty well. Uh, and my rule that I use is that I'm going to basically raid the entire cast of a sitcom. And the sitcom that I raided is BoJack Horseman. Uh, so I'm going to go through my plot really quickly right here. A cyber fascist dictatorship has taken over the United States. After a violent attack on Washington, D.C., extremists have taken control of the government. Police and the military have now been replaced by robots who are built to follow the specific demands of the Supreme President. Uh, critics have been killed off or gone missing, either by the government or by mobs of presidential supporters who have overrun their offices and dragged them out. Uh, people have been brainwashed. People are being spied upon. 
we're in a post-apocalypse situation where people are being basically watched through cams, watched through webcams, watched through drones. They're being followed around. Police forces, I said, are robots. There's no humanity in, in the placing of these people, and it's basically a hopeless society. Uh, and we meet uh, Dina, played by Alison Brie. Uh, she's a young woman who's living in Seattle. Uh, she's just trying to keep to herself. You know, she doesn't she doesn't love the state of the world or anything like that, but she's just trying to, you know, make her day-to-day life work. She's not super involved in what's going on. But that all changes uh, when she reunites with Kel, who's played by Aaron Paul. He's a childhood friend who is now leading an anti-fascist resistance group who's an underground rebellion that's trying to overthrow the government. And he, he reveals to her that they're planning on overtaking a uh, portion of Seattle and declaring it an autonomous democracy zone that's going to try and be the rebellion that saves them from this fascist dictatorship that's taken away all of their rights. And we basically get Dina becoming the audience surrogate who goes and is involved in this underground resistance movement. And we see her kind of rising up to the leadership and being partnered up with Aaron Paul. And they have these budding heads of moments where Aaron Paul is He's been doing it for a long time. He's kind of jaded and she's this new blood, this idealist who thinks that there's better ways to solve problems than direct violence. And we get those clashing of ideals. We get some really uh, great action. Uh, the, the president is played by Aaron Arkin, who is in BoJack Horseman. And the leader of the kind of fan, brainwashed uh, fans who follow him around is uh, Rami Malek, who is also in BoJack Horseman. I think he could play a really good kind of deranged villain. I think that would be fun for him to do. And we get the basically the attempt at rebellion. Dina and Cal working together to take control of Seattle. At the end of the movie, they take Seattle, but they still have the entire country left, and you're set up for a franchise of these people trying to save the country from this t- cyber-fascist uh, leadership that's taken them over. And that's my pitch. Okay. All right, um, Joe, what do you got? All right, so uh, we both use the same rule of the rule of uh, using a sitcom. Uh, however, my director is uh, John Favreau, and the oh, and the sitcom I used is uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine. We so get it. You pick, like Mandalorian? <laughs> well, it's it, even without the Mandalorian, John Favreau probably would have been one of my choices. So my what is that? My three dra- movies now with Mandalorian directors. Somebody binge watched this week. No, I just uh, so my direct. Oh yeah, yeah. My director is uh, John Favreau. Uh, my Damon is going to be played by Andy Samberg, and then I didn't really name a bunch of the other characters, but like my woman fighter character is going to be played by Stephanie Beatrice. My like male fighter character is going to be played by Terry Crews. The voice of my AR AI software system is going to be played by Melissa Fumero. Uh, kind of the leader of the insurgency that they all work for is going to be played by Andre Brower. And then the reprogrammed robot is going to be voiced by Joe Latrulio. So in this action comedy set in 2050, AI robots have taken over the world. Humans have been enslaved. Small pockets of insurgents are fighting back. After an AI robot forces one of the slaves, a tech genius named Damon, to work over Hanukkah, he has decided to fight back. He joins the rebellion, and he has an asset that they don't have, a robot he has reprogrammed to serve him and not the AI software system. Uh, The movie is about them sneaking into the hub of the AI system and blowing it up without getting caught. Uh, The comedy tone is going to be similar to, like, Brooklyn Nine-Nine or Parks and Rec, where it's more about the characters and their interaction, and it's like the characters are what bring the comedy. So 
and that's my pitch. Okay. All right. Um, all right, Bobby, do you, uh, do you have a question for these guys? Um, I mean, honestly, I, I, they pretty much explain their, their movies and I'm not a huge fan of the original, so I don't have like a massive question. I just kind of want to hear them fight it out. Um, because I, I'm leaning a certain direction right now, but I don't think a question I have is going to like really, def- you know, help me until they fight. Yeah, I would say I, I think I like Joe's direction maybe of making this go more uh, comedic because I think that maybe separates itself from some of the other post-apocalyptic worlds we use. But I do need Joe to kind of defend his uh, his actor choices because while I just did start watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine recently and I think it's phenomenal, um, Tristan at least has better actors that have shown they can do it in movies and I don't think you really have that. So I'm, I'm torn both ways too. Um but I'd like just kind of those things addressed uh, when you fight. But Joe, you start. Why is your movie um, better? Um, I think mine's better somewhat. Like Andy Samberg has shown he's been, you know, can do it. Like he's, when he's done like straight comedies, they haven't been great. But in movies like Palm Springs, uh, he's shown he's been really good. And I feel like this movie's like not a straight up comedy. Like there's action and then there's uh, drama. Like Terry Crews has shown in movies whether it's, you know, White Chicks or whatever, that he's been good in movies. Andre Brower, you know, uh, he's Donald, Terry Crews has shown it. Am I? I feel like I'm coming through on somebody's speakers. I don't know, but... Yeah, I heard that a couple times. No, but there anyway, are two of them. Uh, Andre Brower has shown, like, he was a dramatic actor that, you know, started doing comedy in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Like, he was in Glory, and he's been in other movies as a dramatic actor, so he can be dramatic in movies. And then Joe Latrulio's character is supposed to be kind of that big comedic relief. I, I pictured him as kind of like the K2SO type kind of from Rogue One, but maybe a little bit more, just more of like Joe Latrulio's type of personality. And then my main thing against Tristan is like, I think politics in movies is fine. Like, especially like big budget movies, like Return of the Jedi was like a response to Vietnam but I almost feel like his is almost like too on the nose and like too in your face. And there's not like enough subtlety in it to like where he could spread maybe the message of his movie to people on both sides of the aisle. I feel like the, if I feel like the type of movie, the people that you may be trying to reach with the movie would like be turned off by immediately. And the people that like agree with the messages of that movie, like don't necessarily need it. And, you know, it's not going to change their mind because they agree with that movie anyway, where if it was more subtle then potentially could like change people's minds and have them see the point of view that the movie is trying to portray. I don't think mine's as on the nose. Do you think it is like, obviously like the premise is like, like, you know, the, the actual event that uh, turned this into what it is, but I think it's far enough away from reality that people I think will watch it anyway. So you could say the same thing about the hunger games movies. Like, Oh, it's so obvious. It's the oppressive government. And it's like, well, I guess, but that's not, I mean, having an oppressive government is not on the nose to one specific thing. And I think the cyberpunk aspects of this and like the futuristic aspects of this make it something that is not just on the nose. Like, Oh, remember this. And this is exactly what it's like now. And I think the futuristic elements, the sci-fi elements are what really set it apart from just being an on the nose reference to real life. Yeah. I, don't know. I mean, I feel like we could go back and forth on this all day of agreeing whether it's like on the nose or subtle or whatnot. But. but I do want to go back to the cast. I think my cast is really good. I'm proud of my cast. I think 
BoJack Horseman has a large variety of people and a lot of people to dig through. And I think these are some people in there that could really shine in these roles. I'm, I I definitely agree that Andy Samberg has been fine in movies, but I'm not like you're, you're making an action comedy with a bunch of people who don't have any action experience. Really, like is Andy Samberg going to be like fighting people, or is he, he just funny guy? Didn't have action experience before Die Hard. Sylvester Stallone didn't really have action experience before Rambo. Like just because they don't have action experience, especially you pair them with someone like John Favreau. How much ac- action experience did? someone like Pedro Pascal have before the Mandalorian. Like he was literally on game of Thrones. Okay. One, but still. But how much before that? <laughs> and and King's before before yeah, that. I think, you know, but still like. Andy Samberg is funny, but I just don't think I'll take him seriously fighting people. Like Bruce Willis is already a big buff guy. He's intimidating. He doesn't need to get like tons of action training to be good in Die Hard And, Rambo is not even really an action movie. Like there's action scenes in it, but it's more of a drama role for him to do. And like I said, Sylvester Stallone's already kind of an intimidating force already. I would buy him as a threat. Andy Samberg, I'm not going to buy Andy Samberg as a threat to me. Like he's basically me. Robot. (laughs) Sure, but what's the action? Is it robot doing everything? Is Andy Samberg just standing there making like SNL comments on the action? You have intimidating like big people that can do action in this movie. Yeah, but Andy Samberg is a lead. Your lead's not going to do action. He can fight people. It's people versus robots. I mean, to a certain extent, there's a level of, um, like, uh, I can't think of the term, but not cognitive dissonance, but just, you know, you got to take a whatever. I just think you could put, I mean, obviously you're limited with the cast of the sitcom, but there's even, like you said, there's people in the cast who could do action. Why are they not leading the movie? Why are you using Andy Samberg, the one person you can't do action as your leading character. Because I feel like as far as, especially recently is in like Palm Springs, he's coming into his own as an actor. And I wanted in an action comedy, someone that could be comedic, but someone who can deliver the good dramatic moments. And, you know, he can fire a gun just as well as anyone else in a movie, you know? Uh, yeah, I suppose. I just don't know how much I would buy him and to move on to, I mean, I just really yeah, like my cast, but we talked really about the cast a lot. The force. Yes. Go, I mean, <laughs> yeah, my thing with it is, I mean, Beverly Hills Cop is one of the best action movies ever made, and that stars Eddie Murphy. So I'm not really concerned at all about yeah. whether Sandberg is believable as an action star or not. Cause, especially because if Joe was pitching a straight action movie, sure, but he already described his movie as um, a comedy. Action comedy. Movie. And yeah, Andy Sandberg can be funny while fighting, so I'm fine with that. Yeah, I am too. So, but I do still probably need to hear a little more arguments. So, Tristan, what was your your next point on it? I I mean, I appreciate the cast. I see you guys have made up your mind on Andy Samberg. I just really don't agree. But what am I? I'm not going to argue with you guys if you've already made up your mind on that. But I just think you could have put so many better people in the lead of this kind of a movie. Like Andy Samberg is funny, but I think he'd be more funny as like the sidekick who's funny and not the guy who's leading the movie. Uh, but that's just my personal taste, I guess. I just don't think he's led. Outside of Palm Springs, everything else he's been in has been like pretty bad. And like I don't think you give somebody one movie and you're like, okay, now go lead an action franchise. And it's like he needs a little bit more than Palm Springs to get on my radar of like actors who are in great movies now. All right. Well, that was what I asked. So, Joe, what? One of the things I was going to make that I forgot about that I was had thought about at work the other day and I never ended up writing in is one of the things I've thought about before with movies is we have like all of these hundreds of great Christmas movies, but we don't have like any 
uh, like Hanukkah. I mean, we have eight crazy nights, but we don't have like any Hanukkah movies. So one of the things I almost want, I wanted to do was do like a futuristic modern day, like Judah Maccabee type thing where Andy Samberg is Judah Maccabee leading these people into this AI hub. And like there's, cause like I said, he was forced to work over Hanukkah and that's what flipped him from wanting to, you know, change his mind and just like going with the flow to like joining the insurgency and fighting against these things as he is like the future leader of these people. And that's kind of what. And I think, I think cyberpunk, I think cyberpunk is better off taken seriously. Like something like Blade Runner 2077, where they're like really diving into the, the grit of the world, you know? And I think that that's the number. Yeah, that's just a year. That's a, that's a video game mix. What, what, what year was it? Oh, it was two different <laughs> cyberpunk games. I, I'm merging my cyberpunk in my head, I guess. But both of those are pretty popular. And I think cyberpunk 2077 deception did show that people are like ready for this genre to be taken seriously. And even though the game didn't go over well, I think the reaction is being so. Well and then Blade Runner 2049 didn't really make a whole lot of money, did it? No, but it was awesome. <laughs> and I think that's the point. We want to make good movies. We're not trying to market movies. We're trying to make good well, movies. I and I think mine sounds good. I thought your point was that people were ready for that type of movie, but then the movie didn't make money. So, Well, people are ready for that type of movie. People are ready for a little more consumable version of that type of movie, something that's not all in your head, something that has, you know, Alison Brie, Rami Malek, Aaron Paul, people that they know. And it's more of a straightforward movie, more of a plot. You give it, you have a franchise set up. It's not something that's trying to be all heady. It's something that mixes in headiness with action. And I think yours doesn't have any of the actual themes of like cyberpunk. It's just like, oh, robots and they're fighting and it's like that doesn't really capture the genre at all it's just you're making fun of a genre that barely has anything to make fun of my movie. I just all, said right, my all right all right all right all right all right we're wrapping up i had a gavel i'd hit it um bobby what are your thoughts after these arguments i think these both pitches have opposite problems um i like tristan's cast and i don't love his movie pitch i'll get into why and i don't like joe's cast quite as much as tristan's but i do like the movie pitch um so for tristan like obviously you have a fantastic cast and they would do great in a drama and in a futuristic like you know apocalyptic future type movie like this but i think you played into one i do think it is a little it is a little on the nose but that's not the main thing but that along with it's Every movie about the future that goes in this direction, I feel like is played out in a similar way. And you kind of fell into the same tropes that happen in a lot of these movies. Um, And then, but also just, it came down to, for me to go along with that, the title of this movie is the distant future, which I think plays into more of a comedy than it does into a serious drama. Um, I don't think that title is like, you know, something that people are going to take quite as seriously. So I think Joe pitched the right type of movie for this. Um, even though I don't think that your cast is amazing, I think they're funny. So I think it would be a fun, a really fun movie. Um, and that's kind of what I would rather watch than another depressing movie about the future at this point. That's kind of very, very related to something that just happened. I don't so think mine is particularly depressing. Like they win at the end and it's like they're filled with hope they're going to actually come back and overthrow this government. Yeah, the world, the setting, the the tone of the movie is a little bit more down and dour, which is what they do a lot of times in these movies. Hmm. Yeah, no, it's tough because I agree with Bobby in some aspects. I do think um, Tristan's does hit his tones a little on the head, and maybe if he picked a director that wasn't already kind of known for doing that, I would think he had more of a defense, but like he picked a guy who did a 
Hunger Games movie, which is basically that whole movie is hitting a nail on a head over and over again. Even though Catching Fire is probably the only good one of the whole franchise. And same thing kind of with, with I Am Legend. That movie maybe doesn't really have anything to say. I, I, it's tough. I, I don't... I'm not completely sold on either pitch. Um, so I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to give two points to whoever wins Legend of Zelda because that's what I want this to come down to. That's the pitch that I'm more excited to hear. So Tristan will either crush Joe like a grape and win 5-2 to two, or Joe will have an epic comeback and win 4-3, to three, but it will come down to the Legend of Zelda because I just don't really know which direction to go with this one. I'm basically tied 50-50, and I don't want to, you know, cap out and just give maybe Tristan a win because it's a movie I'd rather see. So I think both of them were fine but had a lot of problems. So we're going to go to 2009's Legend of Zelda. It got a 42% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, this video game adaptation has Link, uh, played by J.R. Killigrew, traveling back and forth through time by seven years to help Zelda, played by uh, Camille C. Brown, uh, defeat the evil Ganondorf, played by Gregory Lee Kenyon, um, and prevent him from taking over Hyrule. As the trailer was released on April Fool's, it was assumed to be a joke and bombed at the box office compared to its pretty decent budget. So, um, since I did not uh, pick a winner or loser on that one, um, I know which rules are going, and I'm just going to say, Joe, you go first. All right, I'm cool with that. So, uh, my director is Matthew Vaughn. He directed Stardust and Kingsman, but I more wanted him for his work in Stardust, where he did like a, you know, it's a good movie set in like a fantasy type world. Uh, my Link is going to be played by Tom Holland. My Zelda is going to be played by Elle Fanning. My Ganondorf is going to be played by Idris Elba. And my Midna is going to be played by Zendaya. So Link is a young boy who has a crush on his friend, Princess Zelda. He's about 17 years old. There's a mutual attraction, but he is a peasant and she is a princess. Their love is forbidden in the kingdom of Hyrule. The evil Ganondorf raids the kingdom he wants to rule. Link overhears Zelda talking about how their only chance of saving the kingdom is for a hero to unite the fragments of the Triforce hidden in various dungeons throughout Hyrule. Link decides if he finds the fragments, defeats Ganondorf, and saves the kingdom, maybe he would be allowed to be with Princess Zelda. However, first he needs a weapon. He has heard stories from his grandfather of a sword hidden deep in a cave in a forest near his home. Link goes out into the cave and grabs the sword. A small sprite appears and tells young Link he is the hero Hyrule needs, but he is not ready. The cave seals and traps Link inside. Seven years later, an older Link reawakens in the cave. The cave opens. Link grabs the sword and runs out. Ganondorf now rules Hyrule. Link soon finds Zelda is promised to another man, a prince from a faraway kingdom. Link decides he can still save Hyrule. He goes to the first dungeon to get a piece of the Triforce. In the dungeon, he meets a small imp named Midna, who claims to be from the Twilight Realm. Midna offers to help Link assemble the Triforce. Link says he doesn't need her. He is suspicious she wants the Triforce for herself. Midna isn't leaving Link alone, so he reluctantly agrees to let her. 
Minna helps him get the next few pieces of the Triforce. Link is starting to warm up to her. They cross paths with Ganondorf. Ganondorf kidnaps Minna. Link goes after them to rescue her. Ganondorf tells Minna he knows who she truly is. He holds her up to a light spirit, which gravely injures her. Link, unsure of what to do, takes the dying Midna to Zelda. Zelda is surprised to see Link alive. She assumed he died long ago. Uh, Midna, in her dying breath, uh, tells Link how to use the Triforce to defeat Ganondorf. Zelda is inspired by Midna's kindness, transfers part of her soul into Midna, reviving her. Midna vows to help Link and Zelda stop Ganondorf. Link and Midna hug and go gather the final pieces of the Triforce. Afterward, Link and Midna find Ganondorf. Link defeats him using the Triforce. Minna reveals it was Ganondorf who cursed her, and this isn't her true form. With Ganondorf dead, his power over her fades, and she transforms into a beautiful princess, the princess of the Twilight Realm. Her and Link kiss and are greeted by Zelda. Minna reveals she can't stay. She has to go back to the Twilight Realm. And this is where my rule of a tearjerker ending comes in. Link realizes his old love must go to her new husband, and he now has to say to, goodbye to his new love, possibly forever. And that's my pitch. All right, my pit, if you've been following the rules, I'm sure you can uh, see where my pitch is going, and I think it's a really good fit for this. My Legend of Zelda is going to be a Leica movie. I think they could capture that style and that tone of the Zelda adventure really, really well. And my director uh, is someone who has not worked with Leica before, but I think would be a really good fit. Uh, Mikado uh, Shinaki, who did Your Name and Weathering With You and a lot of really pop popular anime movies, especially ones that have involved like fantasy elements and younger people. And I want to, I think he could really capture Zelda and Link really well because I, I went younger than Jody with my casting. Uh, my Link is Jacob Tremblay. My Zelda is Sadie Sink. And we actually did have the same Ganondorf with Idris Elba. He has that intimidating voice. I think Idris Elba is a great fit for this kind of a role, especially the voice acting. He could really be like booming and I think he'd be a really good fit. And I basically am uh, I'm going to sort of use the style like a nose and make it look a little bit sort of like Breath of the Wild that was very stylistic. It came out a couple of years ago when the Switch launched and it was like a revitalization of Zelda. All of a sudden people were playing it again and people were talking about it again and it was like a, a rebirth of Zelda. And I, I think a lot of that came from the really unique art style that almost felt like a living painting, like a watercolor painting that you're walking around in. And I think like I could pull that art style off really well. And I'm going to go back to Zelda and... Link as a younger, because I think video game movies haven't really taken off yet. And I think you give it like a Spider-Verse treatment. You know, you give it, it's an animated movie that people will go out to see because they hear word of mouth and it's using characters they know. And I think this is a good way to sort of make video game movies start to become the next big thing. You have a known property, you have a, uh, animation. And I think, see, he knows Breath of the Wild. He knows that incredible art style. I think that's something that we can capture here. And Joe mentioned breaking like out onto the map in his pitch with a movie that people actually wouldn't see. Uh, and my my movie sounds like something people would actually go and watch. Like you, you hear Legend of Zelda movie, you're going to go see it. No, even you say, oh, well, who's this Leica? I don't know, but it's Legend of Zelda, so I'll go check it out. And then they learn about Leica. They go watch more Leica movies. So I think this is a perfect movie to put Leica on the map if you want that to happen. And my basic plot is the same plot you get from a Zelda uh, from a Zelda game at the beginning. We have Link is going off to capture or to rescue Zelda after she is captured. And uh, he's on an adventure. He gets the great sword from his from an old tomb nearby, and he's heading off to rescue Zelda. And he rescues her about halfway through the movie, and they have to work together to fight against Ganondorf and, and get him out of Hyrule. I think 
what people want a lot out of Zelda games is a chance to develop Zelda as a character, not just Link, but get a chance to play some time with Zelda. I know Hyrule Warriors just came out this year, and people were excited because you could play Zelda throughout the game. So I think getting people a chance to see Zelda in action, fighting side-by-side with Link, not being a damsel in distress, being someone who's capable and who's strong and who fights with Link side-by-side, I think that would be really exciting, and that's my pitch. I just want Zelda and Link side-by-side fighting Ganondorf in a really good animated movie. That sounds awesome to me. All right. Um, All right, so it sounds like both of you kind of went with different um, game plots to kind of go off of. Tristan obviously focused a little more on Breath of the Wild, and Joe seemed to focus a little more on Twilight Princess. Yeah, I combined, like, the first game. Yeah, it was a combination of a few for years, yeah. Yeah, so... Um, so I like those aspects. Um, I don't really have much questions. I think I got a good picture of them, but Bobby, do you have a, uh, a question for them before they get into it? Yeah. I mean, I guess, um, I do want to hear more about your, like your plots and kind of, if you do reference other games and all that, like I know Joe, you have Twilight Princess in there. Uh, but Tristan, do you have like references to other games? But I, I kind of want to hear that as you fight and talk about your plot. Um, but really the games are known for their puzzle based dungeons, a lot of them. So, uh, do you do you reference that in the movies? Does Link have to solve, you know, puzzles to get through these challenges? Like, how do you reference that in yours? I'll start with you, Tristan. I definitely have that, uh, and I think once Zelda and Link get together, that could be really helpful. You see them working together to solve these puzzles rather than watching Link like by himself trying to solve a puzzle. I think them working together and playing off each other and talking to each other can really make these puzzles seem exciting. Because I know people love the puzzles in Zelda, but people also some people think like, oh, I'm, I'm, I don't like puzzle games. I don't want to like watch people do puzzles. So I think we keep the action flowing. If you have the characters together, solving these puzzles, getting into a tomb, I think that's really exciting. Especially, I want to have that moment when they're finally arriving at Ganondorf's castle and they have to solve this puzzle together. And it kind of brings together all the things they've experienced on their journey, a lot of their knowledge they've learned about Hyrule from the beginning to the end. They kind of put it to the test in this final puzzle. And that, I think, would tribute to the games a lot where you have that like big final puzzle at the end where you're trying to get out of the water temple or whatever and everything's terrible. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that is pretty much what I do. I have some, some references to puzzles for sure. Okay. Joe. Yeah. Same with me. Mine's very similar where it's like, but instead of uh, uh, Lincoln Zelda, it's uh, Lincoln Minna working together, you know, to solve the uh, puzzles. And it's like kind of their character development of, where he goes from like not really liking Midna, not really trusting Midna, to like their relationship growing throughout the movie, and then you kind of see that's the point of the puzzles is you kind of see he kind of sees uh, like how she operates and who she is as a person and stuff like that, and it kind of helps him start to like her more. Okay. All right, let's hear you guys duke it out. I, I kind of want to start with uh, Joe. Why is your movie better? Yeah, uh, I think mine's better just because like like is a good studio, but I don't know if I necessarily want to see them constrained to like uh, a non original story. I feel like that's kind of why I chose them for the movie I did is that they could kind of still tell their own original story within that. But if they have to be kind of stuck, you know, constrained to the world of Zelda, I don't know if that's what I want like a movies to be. And then also, I think part of the like appeal of these video game movies is to see these animated characters in live action for the first time. And I feel like you're just transferring them from one animated medium to the other. And I don't know if that's going to be well, exactly what fans want. If they see, oh, we're making a Zelda movie, fans are going to be super hyped. And then they're like, but it's animated. I feel like part of that hype is going to die down a little bit. 
I think that would have happened if we didn't get uh, Spider-Verse. I think people are really starting to give attention to... He's got the sword right there. Uh, I think people are paying attention to animation for the first time in a, like a mainstream audience is. And I think that you give you put the Zelda name on it, people are going to go out and see it. The, you, especially you make it like this is the attempt to make video game movies cool. And I think that's what this needs to be. A lot of these live action adaptations just come off like lame, you know, Tomb Raider style stuff where it's like, sure, it's live action Laura Croft, but it's just a bunch of like slow-mo Alicia Vikander jumping over things. And like, this doesn't really, it's not fun. This doesn't capture the eye. It's not fun to watch. And I think Leica could, could be a beautiful movie to look at. And I think they could capture the style and tone of the video game and the whimsical kind of world and the fun adventure. I think it fits really, really well in the animation, and I think it could be the one movie that gets video game movies to actually be good. I think Matthew Vaughn, who's done Stardust and who can do whimsical movies, especially if he gets away from Kingsman, uh, can capture like that whole whimsical and capture the world of Zelda in a way that the fans have been asking for for a long time. I don't hear fans asking for it. I want a Zelda movie in animated form. They want to see it in live action. You know, The original movie, even though it didn't work out, people were happy because it was finally in live action. And I think, I don't know if Matthew Vaughn's the best fit for this. I don't think he has the tone to go for like a family movie like this would kind of be. I think when I want to see Matthew Vaughn, I want to see him go kind of off. I want to see him do like the first Kingsman where it's just kind of really fun to watch. Not second one wasn't so much fun, but I think like he could, he's much better off in that era. And I think he's also much better off doing original material than adaptations. And I don't want to see like a Matthew Vaughn version of, Legend of Zelda, I just think that feels like a weird clash. You know, I, when I think of Matthew Vaughn, I think of big bombastic action and like R-rated tone. And I just don't think Nintendo is all about like family appeal and mass appeal. And I just don't see a world where they're like, oh, Matthew Vaughn, come make our Legend of Zelda movie. They're going to want to give it to, especially my director is Japanese. So I think he'd be able to bring that perspective into the game, into the movie. That I, and I just don't, I just don't trust Matthew Vaughn to be the voice of the of the. Zelda franchise. I mean, he's done family movies with like X Men First Class and you know Stardust and all that, and he can do and like a movie, and he's done like the relationship of Magneto and uh, Professor X that you know people wanted to see and stuff, and the early iterations of that. Where I'd like to see him do the relationship between Link and Midna and these other characters that people like and enjoy, and he can adapt that. If he can adapt the X-Men comics in a way that made fans happy, I think he can adapt Zelda in a way that makes fans happy. Yeah, I don't I don't love X-Men First Class. I think it's fine, but I think that's kind of an example of like he's limited by material and he is limited by being part of a franchise and I just don't I think it was a fine movie, but I think it didn't have like the Matthew Vaughn style. When I want to see Matthew Vaughn, I don't really want to see just like an action movie, you know. I just don't. I think I want him to really be able to go off and use his style his way. And I don't think giving him a highly protective IP that Nintendo owns is going to be that. They're not going to let him do whatever he wants. Nintendo's going to be over his shoulder, making sure they do exactly what he wants them to do. Nintendo's not exactly the most like I don't want them open-handed like IP. I don't want Leica to be basically constrained to make constrained to make the movie Nintendo wants them to make. I want Leica to go out and make whatever movies they want to make. Like that's what Leica is. Leica's a studio, basically funded by Nike so that the like CEO or owner's son can make the animated movies that he wants to go out and make. And to make a 
so all of your points against why Matthew Vaughn isn't the right guy is exactly why I don't want Leica to waste their time on a Zelda movie. They would be way more hands-off on an animated movie, though, than a big-budget live-action movie. They're not going to be over the shoulder of Leica. They're going to let them have a little bit more creative control. If you're giving Matthew Vaughn, like, millions and millions of dollars and saying, make this blockbuster, they're not going to be letting him do what he wants. Do you give it to Leica? I think animated movie, lower budget for sure, a lot lower stakes. If it goes wrong, it goes wrong. They're not going to be hounding them to be exactly what they want they're going to let them do more more creativity than matthew Vaughn will be able to do and still their ip they're definitely going to be heavily involved they're going to be involved so they're like not going to be floating in the studio every day you know and i think with I a live think, action movie uh, they would be and i think tristan kind of addressed this point already by bringing up um into the spider-verse you get a little more freedom there with with animated movies so unless there's some other um you know, kind of last point you want to hit on. I think uh, I think I got my decision made up. I think Bobby might as well. Yeah, if you got your decision made yeah. up, then. I feel pretty good about it. All right, so Bobby is the biggest Zelda fan I know, so I'm going to let him be the deciding factor on this. He literally <laughs> has the... Uh, the I should have put the poster up. Master Sword, by the way, Johnny. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know the fucking name of it. Um, I'm a fan of Zelda. I played the games, but I I haven't played all of them. I I was interested to hear the the storylines because I'm more of the I'm familiar with the product, but I'm not an, a huge big fan of it. So from my perspective on it, um, having seen Kubo and the Two Strings, the more you kind of you know made this a Leica movie. I even just seeing the references in that it reminds me of Zelda in just terms of like you have to do this quest to get the weapon or the armor and stuff like that. And I think like has shown that they can do an adventure movie very, very well. I like the animated style for, for link. It reminds me of like the, uh, the paper, like the tune link games, as far as how the characters would look. So I think, um, I think altogether, I really liked uh, Tristan's pitch and I, I disagree with Joe that fans of the games always clamor for these big live action reboots. I think, I've been saying forever that the only way to do a good Mario game um, or a good Mario movie is to make it animated. And Wreck-It Ralph kind of figured that out um, a little bit and used those characters and stuff from video games. I think the best way, I think the reason that most video games fail is by doing them live action and you could have a little more creative control and keep it closer to the style of the original game if you do more of them animated. So I personally would go with Tristan um, Bobby, you're the expert on Zelda, so maybe you'll disagree with me. But what are you what are you thinking? This was really close, and obviously, I am a big Zelda fan, so um, I was really interested to hear these pitches. Um, it, it, this is a tough one; it's kind of a toss up, but I do have my decision. Uh, but Joe, like, I love that you kind of picked and kind of a few different Zelda games and kind of intertwine them, like Twilight Princess, because Mitna is known as like one of the best side you know characters um not a not a lot of people like navi even though it's from like the best one of the at least known as the best game um mitna at least has personality so i liked that choice um i don't know about tom holland as link as much i mean i I could i could see it but he's done so many things and is already iconic as spider-man that i would kind of rather see if you did it live action someone that's a little bit more unknown um but i did like l fanning that's a really good choice as zelda um, so I liked your pitch a lot. And then Tristan, I did, I liked your stylistic choice better. I think that a Leica movie is very, is perfect for Zelda. 
um, to make it believable, to make it a, a better, like, like Kubo and the true true and the two strings. Um, and also, like you said, similar to breath of the wild, your plot was a little bit more basic and Joe's, I got a little bit more out of it, but what I, what put me over the top is that you actually had link and Zelda fighting together. Um, and I think that is something that has been talked about in the Zelda fan community a lot as something that everyone wants to see she's always a damsel in distress or if she's helping it's kind of it's it's not really that much or she helps until she finds out she's a princess basically in the in you know in a couple of the games so that kind of put me over the edge i think i'm going with tristan for the style choice and for that aspect alone and i'm gonna give tristan the win hey hey tristan crushing joe five <laughs> how's it feel joe yeah. not great <laughs> <laughs> You know, I've been kept up late at night, every night, thinking about how I lost to Joe my first episode. You know, I just had nightmares where I mm-hmm. think I could have pit Citizen Kane so much better. And I go back and rethink, like, oh, if I could have done this better, I could have easily beat Joe first episode. So I was very excited to face Joe again because I felt confident that I could make up for the first defeat of my career here on this podcast. So I'm I'm very pleased. First win on the on the change up or on the uh, Forgotten Movies era of change up. First win against Joe. Uh, it's good good feeling. Yeah. All right. So with that being said, we got, I got uh, Tristan's feelings on, on winning. I'm just going to go around real quick. Um, my favorite pitch I think of the night was either Tristan's uh, like a Zelda movie um, or his uh, I fought the law, I think was a really good, good pitch as well. So those are my kind of two favorite pitches. Bobby, what, what was your favorite um, of the night? Um, I mean, favorite of the night is tough because obviously I'm a big fan of Zelda, so I was more interested in hearing those. So I liked both of their pitches for that, really, and it came down to a couple small details. Um, I really liked Joe's Beyond the Burger or Fried. Um, I thought that was really well done. Um, and then Tristan, yeah, I thought the law is another standout. Well, Tristan, what was the hardest one to fight against uh, that Joe pitched? It was hard to fight against the post-apocalyptic one. Uh, everything you guys are saying, I was like, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you're like, oh, it's too dry. it's too on the nose, it's too dark. And I was like, yes, it is. How do I defend myself against this? And Joe's just felt a little bit more fun to watch. Like, I was trying to get on Andy Samberg because I do think it's not a great fit for that kind of movie. But I'm down to see him do something different. I mean, Hot Rod was hilarious. Uh, like and, you said, every other movie he's been is bad. But yeah, yeah. In my head, I was like, that's so wrong. Like, I, know. I feel like all the movies he's been Pop in have been never stop, never stop. Pop yeah. Star was pretty good. The only bad one he's in it is like, that's my boys. Like, really? Yeah. That was yeah, pretty yeah, bad. Yeah. yeah, and I like that he kind of did that and went away from that that route. He didn't just become like the next like Adam Sandler. Dude. <laughs> um, yeah. And Joe, what was it? What was the hardest one to fight against for for Tristan tonight? Uh, definitely, uh, the Legend of Zelda. As soon as he was like, like, like originally for me, like, like, like it was like kind of why I thought about that originally. But then my main point against what I brought up for his is why I ultimately didn't choose to go that way was just because I'm like I don't I'd rather see like a do original movies than a, an IP. But like the way he pitched it and everything, it was definitely the hardest to fight against because the whole time I'm like, yeah, I really don't have an answer for any of this, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was like, hopefully, that's why I was just like, well, mine's live action, so just vote for it because of that. Yeah, that's kind of all I, have. It, yeah like, I actually like this, uh, the Globes of Gibbous Gibbous pitch a lot too. Yeah, that one. I uh, think I beat him, but I, I I liked mine. I I I can't remember if I beat him or not, but I definitely remember liking it a lot. 
I think you did. I think you won that one. But I like. I kind of. Yeah, both your pitches were pretty close for that one. Yeah. Um. But yeah, Joe, big Mandalorian fan. We learned. Um, <laughs> I feel like that was that. more coincidence than anything. Of just. Yeah, three well, directors. For the more, and more directors work on that show, the more you're going to have. I mean, John Favreau has done a million other things yeah. too. Taika Waititi. Yeah, they're grabbing yeah. a lot of like known directors. Peyton Reed. Peyton Reed. Yeah, uh, Rick Fukunawa. Yeah, it's like a ton of them. Yeah, yeah. by like season five of that show, everyone's probably going to have like four directors. Um, you know, Tarantino would do one. Yeah. It, now, if you put Bryce Dallas Howard as a director, <laughs> then that would have been, you know, okay, that's straight Mandalorian. Yeah. All right. Um, with all that being said, uh, I, today was a good episode. Um, to kind of tease next week, it will be Bobby and I facing each other in the last of, at least for now, the Forgotten Movies uh, series because we kind of did a round robin. Bobby and I wrote 2 and 0. It'll be exciting to um, fight after this one. We're going to find out what movies uh, Tristan and Joe pick for us and spend the next week working on those. Um, I'm not positive on my schedule because everything is so up in the air with whether restaurants open up uh, again or not in Michigan. So who knows next week, hopefully we can just shoot for Tuesday again. Um, but if not, then we'll, we'll find another day next week. We'll tweet it out um, or, you know, do whatever. So, so follow us on, on social media and um, it's really all I got to say. So Bobby hit the button. <laughs> Thanks for watching guys.